with both stroke, clear-cut stroke and STEMI on EKG, what are you trying to say first? What would you do? Remember that only 30% of patients with a sexually transmitted infection are actually symptomatic. And the following evening, when I showed up to work, I went straight to the monitor to look for her name, hoping against hope that it wouldn't be there. But there it was. But you go and you listen to him, and his breath sounds are completely symmetric. Do you still work him up? What are your thoughts on that? Letting people die with honor and dignity is just as important as intervening and saving someone's life who needs it. Hey, Don, where do words go when they get tired of being spoken and October's cold tongue approaches the grove of deciduous nipples? Nipples? What? Stop laughing. Shut up. You got a problem with that? Take it up with Richard Shelton. I'm just reading things, all right? Hello, everyone out there in MRAP land. Welcome to the October EM Reviews and Perspectives. This is Swami. And this month, I'm here with Jess Mason. Jess is making a little guest appearance to be our co-host this month. Jess, thanks for stepping in. Thank you. And do you know that you asked me to co-host during my favorite month? I love October. Yeah! October's your favorite. You know, I, I, this is the one thing I felt bad about because Jan loves these fall months. But yeah. October's your favorite month too, so now I don't it feel is. so bad. I think it's also Jan's favorite, so good substitution. But it's Perfect. so fun. I love things cooling down, even if just a few degrees. Right? It doesn't... In Fort Worth, Texas, it doesn't really cool down until like January, but oh. at least it's a little bit better. Yeah. All right. Since it is October, Jess, we do have to ask the question of what your favorite candy is for Halloween. Okay. Oh, this is a tough one. And the reason it's a tough one, Swami, is because I don't really eat candy. I'm like not that big of a candy fan. But which ones will I eat? Almond Joy. That's one that is really like if an Almond Joy shows up in my son's trick-or-treat pail, I'm going to take it. He won't know the difference. Dibs mama. (laughs) Dibs mama on the Almond Joy. Interesting because, you know, there are certain candies that I think it's like there's one kid or one person in the house that likes them and everybody else hates them. Yeah. Almond Joy would be the one in my house. The only person in my household that'll eat an Almond Joy is my mom. So my kids store them up and they give them to grandma when she comes over. I'm the grandma. I'm just like the grandma. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Enough of the candy stuff. I, I Now I know I'm going to send you all of the Almond Joys. Yes. You can get a big, big package of Almond Joy on your doorstep in a couple of weeks. I'm just letting you, letting you know now. Don't let it melt out there. That's all I'm going to say. But let's get into our case for the intro, Jess. And you have a, a fantastic case, one that I don't want to totally give it away, but something that we've never talked about on MRAP before. The case. Yeah. Okay. So. I like to talk to patients and I actually like to record the history from the patient themselves. So all I'm going to say is that this is a 38-year-old woman and her presenting complaint that she checked in for is leg pain. And I will tell you, this is the fourth emergency department visit across different cities for the same complaint. Now, with that said, let's take a listen to the patient and hear the history from her. I have bad leg pains in both legs and I couldn't get relief. It's just tremendous pain, just pain. It's, I don't know how to explain it. I just know it's pain, and it just gets greater and greater. When did it start? Around January, January 12th. Okay, so we're in mid-February now, so it's about one month of this Correct, this ma'am. Okay. What other medical problems do you have? I have diabetes. I have high blood pressure. I have kidney failure. I have congestive heart failure. I have retinopathy. I have neuropathy. 
They said restless leg syndrome. How old are you? I'm 38 years old. Four weeks ago, about, is when you got this pain in your legs. Correct. Tell me about the skin issues, the rash that you developed. What's what's going on there? It's very painful. The water gets on it. It hurts. It's just painful, very painful. So very sensitive to and, touch. And then they, they start peeling off. I used Bacterin on them. Now, are you having any other symptoms head to toe, like... Pain in your chest, difficulty breathing, belly pain. I have difficulty breathing sometimes. Okay, right, with your other medical issues. Right. Okay, but nothing that's really changed when this started with the leg pain. No. Okay. And any fevers or chills? No. Okay. And you don't use any drugs or inject anything down in that area? No. The skin lesions. Okay. And you have them mainly on your legs? On and my feet? legs and in my head. They look exactly like the ones on, mm-hmm. on my leg if you just look at it. Well, thank you for letting me ask you these questions. I appreciate you. Thank you. What stands out to you on that history, Swami? What do you think are the key points? Well, there's a couple of things in there that I'm going to key in on. So she's got this painful leg. There's no trauma. Four visits. Four visits always has to be a red flag that, you know, we've got to do a little bit more work today, figure out what's going on. End-stage renal disease and leg pain, you know, infectious. There's so many different things here that we have to think about. Could it be an infectious source? So something like cellulitis, could this person have some kind of an obstruction? So they've got obstruction to their arterial flow to the leg. So we're going to want to do something like getting ABIs and seeing if this patient has a differential telling us that there's poor flow. These are some of the things that are going to pop into my mind right away. But we like traumatic leg pain or we like the ones that are clearly, clearly infectious in source. And we do have some photos, right, Jess? Yeah. So take a look at the photos. And if you're, you know, not if you're driving, but if you're able to take a look down at your phone or at the website, you can actually see photographs of this patient's legs. So, I mean, when you look at those photographs, how would you describe the skin lesions? Well, I'm not going to say it's a maculopapular rash. I reserve (laughs) that for dermatologists alone. There's some ulcerations on the leg. There are some purplish areas as well. And it almost looks like there are some scattered eschars as well. And I'll be honest, Jess, this is not one that I think I've seen before. This isn't a pattern that I can look at that leg and be like, oh, this is clearly what it is. I'm definitely going to need a little bit of help with this one. Yeah. The differential, I think you went through a lot of the key things here. Could it be infectious? Could it be a vasculitis? Certainly. And I asked her about this, but you know, we're biased. We see a lot of people who inject drugs into different parts of their bodies or who are skin poppers. These are things that you should think about that are worth asking. But then we get into some of the more obscure dermatologic diagnoses that are really not on the tip of my tongue, things that I don't think about often. And I don't know if I'd even think to put them on my differential, like warfarin necrosis or endarteritis obliterans. I'm not making that diagnosis from the emergency department. No, I'm not making that diagnosis either. And I I feel like those are diagnoses that you're going to need to consult Derm to do a biopsy to really get that information. And it's not something that we're going to be able to make at the bedside immediately. But but I do think this person needs a little bit of added evaluation to try and figure out because they're in quite a bit of pain. And again, four ED visits always worries me when they've got multiple visits that you kind of feel like you got to do something a little bit more and try and figure out what's going on. Right. So let me tell you what happened in this case, okay? I am working with a really smart third-year resident, Sam Christ. Shout out to Sam. Sam Christ, boom. And he comes to present this patient to me and he straight up gives me the diagnosis. Like I hadn't even seen the patient yet. And he says, Dr. Mason, I have a patient for you to see. And I believe the patient has. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. I'm ready. Bring it on. 
Calciphylaxis. Calciphylaxis. And Jess, I mean, did you immediately run to the patient or did you immediately run to Dr. Google to figure out what calciphylaxis is? Exactly. Yes. I'm trying to put it together. Now, I'm going to break this one down because calciphylaxis, I'm not familiar with the term, but I'm going to figure it out by breaking the word down into its roots. So calci, calcium, fill, the opposite of empty, and axis is the bad guys in the classic board game, Axis and Allies. I can't really put this one together with those three things. I I need a little bit more. You took a wrong turn somewhere in there. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I've I've heard this before. We were kind of talking about it offline. Calciphylaxis, the only time I've heard it is when a nephrologist yelled it at me over a phone and said, did you consider calciphylaxis? And I said, of course I considered it. (laughs) But but other than that, I don't think I have a lot of experience with this. Yeah, this is the first case that I had seen that I've known about. And once you see it, so take a look at the photos, because once you see it and you put it together with the history the patient gave you of these severely painful skin lesions, this is the diagnosis in a patient with end-stage renal disease. And, you know, there's not really a lot of tests to confirm it. It's really a clinical diagnosis based off the history and the exam and the patient with the right risk factors. And she's got a lot of them. So it's really common in patients with end-stage renal disease on dialysis, but it could also occur in patients with kidney transplants or sometimes in patients who don't have end-stage renal disease. Other risk factors would be patients with diabetes, obesity, female patients, and anyone who's on long-term dialysis or on certain medications like calcium binders, vitamin D analogs, steroids, or warfarin. There's also an association with hyperphosphatemia, and I don't like thinking about endocrine on that level of detail, but, <laughs> but it is important to make that connection because it ties into one of the potential therapies. So why do we care about this, Swami? Why is this an important diagnosis to make? I mean, first of all, obviously very painful for the patient and we need to be taking care of that pain. But then I I remember calciflaxis, and I think this is why the nephrologist yelled it at me over the phone. It doesn't have a a very good outlook. Once a patient develops calciflaxis, we don't have a ton of ways to treat it. And and it's got a, a pretty high morbidity associated with it. It does. And mortality. So this is actually thought to be a lethal disease with a six month survival of only 50%. So prognostically, it is not a good thing. There are some things that we can do while the, the treatments are somewhat experimental. There are some things we can do for this patient. I think making the diagnosis is the first step, right? Because that's a diagnosis we can make. There's no lab test that's going to confirm it. You could maybe think about getting a biopsy in a derm clinic, but that's even questionable because the trauma of the biopsy might worsen that lesion or lead to infection. So it's really a clinical diagnosis. And I feel like I should back up for a second and talk about what is this? Like, why do patients even get these lesions on their skin and what does it mean? So I did a little bit of research on this. And here's my Jess oversimplified version of how it happens. It starts with some vascular endothelial injury. This increases microvascular calcification. That leads to narrowing of the arterioles, specifically where the dermis meets the hypodermis. And then it causes thrombosis in these arterioles and capillaries. And that thrombosis and calcification causes tissue infarction. So it's basically skin and dermis that's dying and causing these skin lesions that progress from initially these sort of purple papules that are really painful. And then over time, they develop ulcerations and eschars. You can see that whole range of the skin lesions in the photographs of this patient's leg. So be sure to take a look at that because this is really a diagnosis that 
You have to think of it. And then as soon as you see it and have the right story, you can make that diagnosis and get the patient the treatment that they need. This is the hard part, Jess, because we just said that we don't have great treatments for it, but we still want to make this diagnosis to move them towards whatever treatments we do have available and really to get the right people following the patient to see if they can turn this around a little bit and obviously to manage the pain as well. Yeah. And those are the hallmarks of treatment, wound care, pain control. If we do nothing else for this patient, at least we've given her a diagnosis, which is very reassuring for people to know what's afflicting them. And then to get a wound care consultation and a pain control regimen so that she's not suffering at home. Beyond that, there are some experimental treatments. There are some limited data to support parathyroidectomy. And this patient was referred for a parathyroidectomy ultimately. And then there's other things like avoiding certain things that might be triggers like vitamin D and other medications that are common in some patients on dialysis. And then there's one other experimental medication called sodium thiosulfate. I can't really tell you why, but it is recommended to have a trial for three or four weeks because it, it might cause some vasodilation. It might have some antioxidant properties and maybe slows down the calcification of that vascular smooth muscle, but it's really not well understood. But hey, we don't really have anything else at this time. And so patients are usually given a trial of sodium thiosulfate. And it would seem that wound care would be really important here, like you mentioned, because these patients often, end-stage renal disease, already at a high risk for infection, diabetes, obesity, or some of the other risk factors in here. And now they've got this open ulcer that is just waiting to become infected, make the patient septic. I don't know how many of these patients die from overwhelming infection, but if we can get them to wound care and prevent those overwhelming infections, obviously that's going to be an important thing to do. Yeah, that's right. So for this patient, we got her admitted and we weren't really doing a whole lot beyond admitting her and letting someone else take over the care, right? Getting her that nephrology consultation and they started her on sodium thiosulfate, getting her on a pain regimen, which they can do inpatient. And then she was also referred to an endocrine surgeon for a parathyroidectomy. So I think very important to make this diagnosis, to know that it exists as a diagnosis. And once you see it, if you can just burn that image into your mind, I think we're going to be able to diagnose this more frequently. Yeah. My guess is that if you're a dialysis center, you probably have seen these patients, whether you've caught it or not. And I love the fact that if you look at these pictures and like you said, you burn them into your brain, you'll make this diagnosis. And it's those doorway diagnoses, right? Where we have a little bit of information. We seem like, oh, I know what that is right away. And, and that's a nice feeling to have as well. It's kind of like when you see the zoster rash, you're like, oh, I know what that is. That's shingles. Like I've seen that enough times to have that pattern burned in my brain. This is just another one of those to add to our library of pattern recognition so we can easily make that diagnosis at the bedside. That's right. And that list of dangerous dermatologic diagnoses is so small. This one deserves to be on that list. Absolutely. And just before we discuss this case, there was not a chapter in Corpendium on it, but now you've authored that chapter. <laughs> I'm starting it. Yes, we should have that out very soon. Yes. So you can look it up there and learn even more about it. Excellent. And another place where all those pictures will live so that if you're considering this, you can just pop over a Corpendium, pull up the pictures, and then that can obviously help you to make that diagnosis. All right, Jess, let's jump from that wonderful case into our favorite segments. And my favorite segment this month was talking to Amal about some cardiac conundrums. And the reason I love this piece, Jess, is because it's great to hear somebody who has really taken his entire career to master the heart and still hear how some of these cases can give him a bit of pause and thinking about what is the best way to manage this patient. So we went through 
two cases that are complicated in that the patient doesn't exactly present the way that we typically see them when they have an MI. And we have to think a little bit outside of the standard to get there. And listening to Amal think through these cases is what I think gives it a lot of power. Yeah, hearing an expert talk through their reasoning is just so helpful to just be like a, what's the saying? A fly on the wall. That's the one. Yes. Yes. A fly on the wall in Amal's brain would be great. <laughs> <That's creepy. laughs> and, you know, for similar reasons, my favorite piece this month was the pneumothorax segment with Eileen, Al Sacchetti, and Jeff Seiden. And what I loved about this is that you're hearing different experts who, you know, we look up to these people. Al Sacchetti, he's, he's amazing. I've heard you say he's the doctor you want to be when you grow up. I feel the same. But to hear Al and Jeff have this discussion about how do you manage this sort of moderate-sized pneumothorax, they talk about it from a pediatric perspective, but really the care is applicable to adults as well. And you have one expert saying, I would do it this way, I would intervene, and another expert saying, I would observe and watch and wait. And there's really good arguments for doing both. So you got to listen to the segment to get into the details about that. But I love just knowing that there's different ways to manage the same problem. And it depends on you, your level of comfort and expertise with that procedure or that management, and also the patient's wishes. Absolutely. And it's the art of medicine. And these guys really kind of put that together for us so we can hear there are all of these different ways to manage something. And and just how many times you do something and someone's like, oh, I wouldn't have done that. And you think back and say, did I do it wrong? Or is this just another way to manage it? And listening to this discussion really tells you that so many of these things that we do, there really is more than one right way to do it. We have an amazing slate of, of segments. We've only discussed a couple of them here, but so many other good things. But before we dive into the month, we've got a little callback to a piece last month on Bell Palsy by Eileen. Jess, you've got a little bit of a correction that we need to make to that piece and some other pieces that we've done in the past as well. Let's have a chat about possessive eponyms. And before we actually go into that, and you might be rolling your eyes at this, but I want to talk about the American Medical Association Manual of Style. Yeah! I'm talking about how we write and edit the medical literature. In the AMA Manual of Style, they actually recommend that we don't use possessive eponyms. That has been a long-standing recommendation since the 1970s, and yet, can you bring yourself to say Bell Palsy without raising an eyebrow? The disease doesn't belong to Bell. If it belongs to anyone, it's the patients who have it. This was the exact argument made by advocates for patients with Down syndrome. Stop calling it Down's syndrome. It is Down syndrome. I think most of us have converted to that terminology, so why not make it true across all possessive eponyms? Let's try to start saying Bell Palsy. And once we get comfortable with that, we're gonna move away from the eponym altogether because really it should be called idiopathic facial palsy. Why use the eponym at all? My name is Sir Charles Bale. Who up in Edinburgh, can't you tell? And my name is John Langdon Downs. Get to the point, stop messing around. We're flattered that you named the disease. After us eponymously. But unfortunately, erroneously, you all think it belongs to me. Say my name but lose the S. Down syndrome, not Downs. Say my name but lose the S. Bell palsy, not Bells. Say our names but lose the S and choose to stress what's voracious. It behooves the rest to improve the mess and be grammatical enthusiasts. H, Dr. Burl Bernard Crone. Say my name, but leave it alone. Feel free to cite me, Dr. Dr. A. Alzheimer. Give me an S and I'll give you a shiner. Oh, that's weak. That's not It's pretty bad, dude. Oh, shut up. Your names are like one syllable. It's totally easy to rhyme with one syllable. Dude, relax. You try with three. And this is Dr. George Huntington. And leave off the last S for savings. 
What? You see that? That's even worse than mine. Oh, that's right. Yes, I think the song has degenerated far enough. Say it with me. Say Bell Palsy. Bell Palsy, not Bells. Alzheimer Syndrome. Alzheimer, not Alzheimer's. Down Syndrome. Down Syndrome, not Downs. Crone Disease. Crone Disease, not Crohn's. We have all said and heard much stranger things in our careers. We can do this. Cardiology Corner! With your host, Dr. Amol Matu. By now, Amol, listeners pretty much know what to expect from us. You pick an article on a cards topic that directly applies to EM. We dive into the article. Really, we take the time to stress the changes that come to our management from these long involved articles. But today, we're going to mix it up a little bit. We're going to keep folks on their toes. We're going to do a clinical cardiology conundrums, the old triple C. Clinical cardiology conundrums. What you posed to me was a couple of clinical scenarios that really kind of push us as emergency physicians to figure out what is the best approach to evaluate and manage this patient. The straightforward STEMI, that's relatively easy. The the patient who's got the straightforward dissection that you find, it's relatively easy, but these are a little bit more complicated. Case one. So the first case you sent me is a 56-year-old woman who comes in with left-sided weakness and slurred speech that started 45 minutes ago. She also, at some point, complains of chest pain, and that prompts a quick ECG. And when you're on your way to CT, someone hands you that ECG, and the patient has ST elevations in 1, AVL, V5, and V6. You do a quick non-con head CT. It's negative for intracranial hemorrhage. And now what you have in front of you is a patient who looks to have a STEMI on ECG, and they have a possible ischemic stroke. What's your priority here? Do we treat the STEMI first and go to the cath lab? Or do we treat the stroke first by giving thrombolytics? And should we get all of the additional imaging that we typically get when a patient has a stroke? Yeah, this is a a tough question. And it's based on a real case that we had, just as you presented, the patient also had some cardiac risk factors. And the onset of the stroke symptoms and chest pain was pretty similar in time to each other. So it wasn't really like one clearly started and then there was just a little bit of chest pain. And so that would really sound like a stroke. And just as a little bit of background, after we had this case, I sent out a Twitter poll and I've just learned how to do Twitter polls. (laughs) So it's it's actually (laughs) easy. So I'm doing all kinds of Anyway, I sent this Twitter poll out to the Twitterverse and I got 3,300 people to respond. And the majority of people said to get a CT angio because they were worried about dissection and just skipping to the chase. It wasn't a dissection. But I was really curious to find out, do you go to save the brain first or do you try to save the heart first? And Swami, what would you do? And there's no right or wrong answer here, but I'm just curious, what would you do if a patient came in with both stroke, clear-cut stroke and STEMI on EKG? What are you trying to save first? What would you do? I think this is really tricky because we know that time is brain and we know that time is cardiac muscle. If I don't save the heart, I can't perfuse the brain. If I don't go for the brain first and they lose function, there's not much I can do to get that function back. So I think this is really tricky. I agree that I would have gotten an angio because this is one of those chest pain plus syndromes. You got to be worried about the dissection. And after that, I would really be using my consultants to help to guide the management. Of course, the cardiologist is probably going to say, we need to take care of the heart first. And the neurologist is probably going to say, we need to take care of the brain first. So that might not help as much as we'd like it to. The one thing I have in my back pocket is if I think this is an ischemic stroke, I could just go with thrombolytics 
which should help for the MI, although it's not really the ideal. If you have a STEMI, you'd rather do PCI. And then there's the question of what if it's a large vessel occlusion and the patient could benefit by going to interventional radiology or neurointerventional radiology? I think there's so many different things in here. And I think ultimately what I would be looking at is maybe how bad each of those is. How bad is that MI? How bad are those stroke symptoms? And does that push me in one direction or the other? So Amal, what I've done there is given you no answer whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, there's really no good answer as we'll see. And when, uh, just to tell you what the poll came out, again, I mentioned that most people would say rule out dissection first, but then after that's been done, what do you do? And there was a, um, probably like two thirds of the people said that they would try to, to save the brain first, they'd give TPA for stroke. And the remaining third said that they would send the patient for cardiac cath. So those are interesting things to, to talk about. And we know that really one can cause the other. So if we're in the, what is that, Occam's razor, where you're only allowed to have one diagnosis, well, if it turns out that the patient's primary problem is a heart attack or ACS, yeah, ACS can induce stroke symptoms. Well, how does that happen? Well, if a patient is hypoperfusing because they have, have a sudden drop in left ventricular function, then that can produce some further ischemia in cerebral vessels that might already be partially occluded. And so it makes sense that a heart attack with a drop in EF can induce some stroke symptoms. So you might say, well, if there's clear-cut evidence of a STEMI, ST elevation or reciprocal changes, this is just our, a STEMI that's producing stroke symptoms. On the other hand, we also know that true acute ischemic stroke can induce ischemic findings on the EKG. That's been very well documented that intracranial processes can cause all kinds of EKG problems, including classic ST elevation with reciprocal depression. And people are still trying to figure out why exactly this happens, but it's been very, very well documented. So just because there's a clear-cut STEMI on the EKG with clear-cut stroke symptoms, you really still don't know which is better. And then some people might say, well, you ought to save the heart first, because if the person's having a heart attack, it's more likely they'll die of the heart attack than the likelihood that they'll die of a stroke. On the other hand, some people will say, well, save the brain first, because there's things that you can do to preserve cardiac function, even if they did have a heart attack, you can put LVADs in and you can give different medications. You can even do a heart transplant, but there is no LVAD for the brain and there is no brain transplant except in the sci-fi uh, <laughs> movies. But, and you know, the, the funny thing is we've pretty much gotten to a point where you can transplant any organ, but you can't transplant the brain and still be the same person. That's the brain really is who you are. And so if we ever got to the point of transplanting a brain, you're changing the person themselves. So Anyway, that, that's a different far-fetched discussion. <laughs> but there really is a lot of question. And I'll tell you, what happened in this case was that the patient simultaneously had a thrombotic MCA stroke and an acute thrombotic LAD occlusion. So you think, well, this is a totally wacky case. Actually, it's not that wacky. There have been a handful of cases reported. Some of the people that responded on Twitter said that they've seen that happen also. And so that led us to kind of looking through the literature to find out how often does this happen that a patient has a true thrombotic stroke and a true thrombotic infarction of the heart. And, you know, it certainly is a relatively rare thing, but it has been well reported. And looking through the literature, I sent you this article called Simultaneous Acute Cardiocerebral Infarction. Is there a consensus for management? And that's 
kind of the title of this podcast, I guess. This is from Annals of Translational Medicine. Swami, I know you subscribe to that. I'm of not course. Sure if you remember? <laughs> if no, that, you remember. I have that one posted up on my wall. I read it every day. <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. <laughs> very helpful for uh, insomnia as well. Actually, it, it was a pretty good article. It was very interesting. And they brought up some of the things that probably are running through all of our brains right now. Turns out there is an association between the two of these things occurring simultaneously. Now, how can a thrombotic MI cause an acute ischemic stroke? Well, number one, if you drop your LV function, or if you already have a low LV function, you can develop left ventricular thrombi. And if those thrombi embolize, you can have embolization to cerebral and coronary vessels and end up with both. Also, if you drop your ejection fraction, that can reduce cerebral blood flow to watershed areas or poorly perfused areas. And that can induce true stroke symptoms also. So that's one way in, in which an MI can cause the stroke. And then on the other hand, acute ischemic stroke can actually cause an MI. The relationship between the brain and the heart has been well publicized. We, we all know about Takotsubo syndrome. But acute ischemic stroke, apparently, I never knew this before reading this article, but ischemic strokes involving the insular cortex appear to be associated with adverse cardiac outcomes, including MIs and including arrhythmias and wall motion abnormalities. And one of the theories is that there's an adrenergic surge and this marked increase in catecholamines causes acute myocardial injury or apparent myocardial injury in the form of Takotsubo, but you can actually have positive troponins and true myocardial injury. And, and so it's really interesting that you can actually have both. So Occam's razor is out. Uh, you're misunderstanding me. And what was that other one? Is it Hickam's dictum? Hickam's is dictum. Absolutely. Hickam's dictum, which is a patient can have as many damn diagnoses as they want. <laughs> so the, in this article, they, they talk about management of this simultaneous condition. And I'll preface this by saying that there's no definite good answer. So hopefully people won't be too frustrated, but just be aware that this can happen. One of the problems about treating them primarily for an MI when they also have a stroke, is that antiplatelet medications and anticoagulants, which we normally give to MI patients, can actually markedly increase the risk of hemorrhagic conversion of stroke patients. And so that's why when we're dealing with an acute stroke, we generally don't want to give antiplatelet medications or anticoagulants. What about treatment of the patient with thrombolytics? Well, that seems fine. That's kind of like one-stop shopping. Just give thrombolytics and you'll treat both of these conditions. Well, the problem there is that the dosages and duration of lytics for stroke and MI are different. If you give the MI dose of lytics, and it turns out the patient has a stroke, that's a more aggressive use of lytics, and it's going to increase the risk for intracranial bleed in the stroke patient. On the other hand, if you're treating with the stroke dose of thrombolytics, that, again, that, that's a different dose. It's a smaller dose and a different duration, and it's less likely that your lytics are going to work for the MI. You know, a third of the time when you give dosing of lytics, proper dosing of lytics for MIs, they fail. If you're giving stroke dosing of lytics to an MI patient, it's even more likely that the lytics are just not going to work. And now you've got a person who's got lytics on board, and you're going to call cardiology and tell them that you want them to go to the cath lab. So there's really no great, great solution there. If you're in a big medical center, like maybe where we work, Exactly what you talked about is probably the best thing to do. You call up everybody, and then you can discuss the possibility of a combined endovascular approach, meaning 
they get uh, PCI and thrombectomy sequentially. So everybody's there at the same time. But out in the community, it's, you obviously don't have those resources. And so the authors of this article actually quoted a combined statement that was published by the AHA and the American Stroke Association. And it was not based, obviously, on evidence-based big randomized studies. But what they suggest is giving IV TPA at the stroke dose and immediately following that by sending the patient to the cath lab. And that might be the best way. But they didn't address the issue about what do you do when you send somebody to the cath lab? Do you give them antiplatelet meds? Do you give them anticoagulants? And, and so you really have to discuss the pros and cons, the risks and, and benefits with your cardiology consultants and probably with the patient also. So no perfect solution to this issue, but key point from my standpoint, number one, know that it can and does exist, that you can have simultaneous acute cerebral and coronary occlusion. And then key point number two, get everybody involved. And if you're out in the community where you don't have the endovascular, combined endovascular approach, then it seems reasonable to just go ahead and give the stroke dose of lytics and then activate the cath lab almost simultaneously. And they go to the cath lab after the lytics if the patient still is having signs or symptoms of an MI. Despite this being so rare, Amal, and the fact that most of us won't see a kind of case like this in, in our careers, I think it's a good thought exercise to think about what it could possibly be and what is the best approach to treatment. I like that idea of giving the neurodose of lytics and then going for PCI. What I might add in there is that if the patient's stroke symptoms look like they could be a large vessel occlusion, you want to get that CTA and perfusion before they go up to the cath lab because the delay between going to the cath lab, getting a PCI, and then coming back down to get that CT angio CT perfusion might be too long. It takes a little bit of time to read the angio and perfusion. So get that before you go up to PCI to help to determine whether your neurointerventional team needs to come in. And I know in some places, the suite where they do cardiac interventions is pretty close, if not the same suite where they're doing the neurointerventional stuff. So that comes back to that idea of the hybrid approach. We'll take care of the MI, and then right after that, we'll go after the brain if it's necessary. You kind of want to get all of your ducks in a line before you leave the department as much as you can to help your consultants out. Yeah, that's a really good point. We actually discussed this case in our STEMI committee meeting because, as I mentioned, it was a real case. And the head of our cardiology group actually came right out and said, you know what? If it's me, save my brain first. So this is a cardiologist, <laughs> so this is a cardiologist saying, save my brain first. So, you know, I think that's a, a very reasonable approach. Case two. All right, Alma, let's go into case number two. This one, I think, is a little bit less of a conundrum, but still an important one. And actually, one that I think comes up much more frequently. Case number two is a 40-ish-year-old man with chest pain radiating to his back. The ECG shows ST elevation in one, in AVL, in V5, V6, with reciprocal changes. This clearly is a STEMI pattern. The patient has concerning symptoms, but they also have concerning symptoms for dissection. So what's your approach to evaluating that patient? Yeah, this is a much more common scenario. And we end up having a QA on a case like this probably every couple of years. and it's really, really difficult to know exactly what's going on. You know, I, I don't understand the human body. Let me just say that. I don't understand how <laughs> pain radiates. We were all taught that cardiac pain is supposed to radiate to the left arm, left jaw, left chest. And then we learned that actually, if it radiates to the right side, that definitely can be cardiac as well. But I've seen people with radiation to their toes, to their teeth, to their right ear, all kinds of wacky radiation. And of course, 
it can sometimes radiate to the back. And does that automatically mean that you're obligated to rule out a dissection? Well, a lot of people really feel that, hey, chest pain radiating to the back, you've got to rule out dissection. And so you're wasting a lot of time sending them off to the CT suite to get a CT angiogram plus an extra bolus of dye, when in reality, statistically, it's far more likely that it's an MI. You get the negative CT angiogram, and now you've lost about 30 minutes or so, and we know that time is muscle. What do you do? Well, I actually worked out the numbers here. We, we know that dissections can produce uh, STEMI patterns. They can produce ST segment elevation. Dissections cannot just do that, but sometimes dissections can actually dissect into a coronary artery, usually, by the way, right coronary artery. So usually it's going to be an inferior STEMI pattern. But how often does this actually happen? Well, what I did was I looked at national databases looking at the number of patients presenting with chest pain, the number of patients with chest pain who rule in for actual MI, the number of MIs that are actually STEMI. I looked at the number of patients that are having chest pain who rule in for dissection. And then I looked at the percentage of dissections that produce ST segment elevation. And just, again, jumping to the chase, what are the final numbers? It turns out that when you look at these numbers, what I calculated was that for every 14 to 1500 cases of ST elevation infarction on the EKG, you'll see one case of dissection. So when you see what looks like a STEMI on the EKG, the odds of it actually turning out to be a dissection are one in 14 to 1500. So the statistics are way, 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 way in favor of just going to the cath lab and not changing your approach just because the patient says that they had pain moving into the back. Now, with that said, if there are a lot of concerns that really heighten your suspicion for a dissection, for example, to me, one of the most important things is if it was abrupt onset with maximum intensity at the moment it started. So they went from no pain to 20 out of 10 pain in a split second. Well, that's concerning for a dissection to me. On the other hand, if it wasn't abrupt onset, or they're using the words ripping or tearing, things like that, then in all likelihood, I'm, I'm probably not going to bother with the CT angiogram. But if they do have maximum intensity to onset, abrupt onset, radiating to the back, then that's a patient that I probably would go ahead and get the CT angiogram on. And cardiology is very, very much on board with that plan as well. We've talked about dissection many times in the past, Alma. We've talked about the physical exam findings, how we rarely find them. This seems to be a place, though, where if I found one of those physical exam findings for dissection, so they've got chest pain radiating to their back and a decreased pulse or a decreased pressure or any weakness or numbness, then that pushes me way towards getting the CT angio before I do anything else. The other option that's there, and I've heard people do this before, is that they call cardiology. They say, I've got a STEMI, but I've got a concern for dissection. And the cardiologist says, no problem. Send them up to the cath lab. We'll do an aortogram before we do anything else. Is that something that you can pitch to the cardiologist and say, hey, why don't we just do this instead of going to CT first? Yeah, I've never heard the words no problem come out of their <laughs> mouth when that comes up. And here's the problem. You know, first of all, cardiologists don't like diagnosing dissection in the cath lab. They will if they have to. But when they routinely do a cath, they oftentimes will put the catheter beyond where you would squirt the dye to pick up a dissection. So your point about telling them up front, I'm worried about dissection. Can you please 
squirt an aortogram before you proceed with the rest of the cath. I think that's very, very important. But one of the problems and one of the reasons why the cardiologists don't like this option is because what medications does every patient need to be on before they go for cath? They Aspirin, need to be on heparin. Clavix, yeah, bivalrudin, they, heparin. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of some other antiplatelet agents. But. <laughs> That's exactly right. Now, aspirin is a relatively weak antiplatelet medication. So I, you know, honestly, I just give aspirin to everybody. I don't care if it's dissection or pericarditis or a STEMI. The patient's family comes to visit. I give them aspirin too. <laughs> the nurse taking care of the patient, I give him or her aspirin. So aspirin is not a big deal. But once you start getting into heparin land, you know, every patient going to the cath lab really needs to be on heparin and heparin is not a good idea. And if you're at a place where you're also giving these fancy super aspirins, the clopidogrel or ticagrelor or whatever else, or a G2B3 inhibitor, those can be really dangerous for the dissection patients. And so that's the reason also that the cardiologists really don't like having to diagnose this in the cath lab because those patients will already be on heparin by virtue of going to the cath lab. So in those scenarios, what I've oftentimes found is that when you call cardiology and you have a reasonable concern, they will always say, you know what, get the CT angiogram first and then send them up. I don't care about the extra IV dye that the patient receives, but the CT aortogram or angiogram is still the best, most reliable way of diagnosing it. And you don't have to be on heparin to get that test done. And so the patients probably are going to have a better outcome. And just to follow up, the second case that we talked about did turn out to be a dissection and it was actually picked up by the cardiologist when he evaluated the patient and found that the patient had no pulses in one of the upper extremities. And that's what led to the diagnosis of dissection. And the first patient that had the simultaneous MI and stroke ended up going for a double endovascular therapy and unfortunately ended up doing okay with only mild residual deficits. So uh, really interesting cases. Medicine's really interesting. And Occam, Occam worked in another hemisphere or... <laughs> Occam worked a in a different reality. universe. Yeah, parallel reality. <laughs> I think uh, Hickam clearly was an emergency physician. Summary. Um, well, I think with both of these cases, the thing that comes up here is, yes, as emergency physicians, we like to be the expert. We like to make all the decisions. But these are very difficult clinical scenarios where getting your consultants involved can really help the patient. It can really help the patient to get the best care for the disease they have. And I think that it's really important for us to put a little bit of our ego aside put the call into those consultants and say, let's decide together of what the best thing is. I think from a medical legal perspective, it probably helps that you have the consultants involved in that decision-making. Not that that is our major concern. We want to take care of the patient, but I think that getting the consultants involved early kind of helps with both of these pieces. And that is the theme that I pull out of all of this. Yes, we need to be on top of this. Yes, we need to know what the options are, but then let's get our friends involved to help us make those decisions. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right. This is not the time or place to try to be a cowboy and say, you know, I'm an emergency physician. I don't need anybody to help me make decisions. No, I, I think it's worth discussing the case with the people who are going to be assuming care of the patient. And you might even want to discuss the different plans with your patient if, if you feel that they're going to be able to understand that. So yeah, these are tough cases. It's better to think about these things and work out the plans right now or during daylight hours than at two o'clock in the morning, suddenly saying, now I got to call them up and we need to sort through what we're going to do. We've never really considered this before. Think about these plans and come up with plans during the daylight hours rather than waiting till they hit you at one or two o'clock in the morning. Amal, well, these were both your cases, but I just want to let the listeners know that if you have similar clinical conundrums that revolve around cardiology, 
send them over. We'll dig in and see if we can give some good recommendations because I'm sure that many of our listeners have seen similar cases to these. And my guess is that they have other similar cases that are concerning and not clear of which way to go. There is no Rosen's chapter on what to do with the patient who's having an MI and a stroke at the same time. And so if you've got those cases, send them in and Amal will help guide us through the management. Amal, thanks so much. William of Ockham here. I never said a patient couldn't have multiple things wrong with them, only that they probably have the most probable things wrong with them. If a patient comes in with a STEMI, you don't think aliens, do you? If a patient wants to be infected by aliens and have a STEMI, they bloody well can do that. Oh, Hickam, so boorish. So I'm back with Al Sacchetti and Jeff Seiden, and they have promised me a most unfair and disastrous fight. And that's what I'm expecting for today, because we're going to talk about spontaneous pneumothorax particularly related to treatment in the pediatric population. Smackdown. Eileen, Al, and Jeff are going to talk about the treatment of pneumothoraces in pediatric patients, but listen closely because I think this applies very much to adult patients as well. Now, this isn't super common. It only happens in about four out of 100,000 children, at least in the United States. But since it peaks sort of in the late teens, age 16 to 20, a lot of us are seeing up to 21 in the PZD. So we are going to see this. Usually it's going to be your tall, thin male patient, the guy who looks like he has a spontaneous pneumo, sounds like he has a spontaneous pneumo, and he does have a spontaneous pneumo. Today's topic is the spontaneous pneumo. Let's get started on what we do with this patient. Thanks, Eileen, for having us. And I really look forward to bashing in Al's face yet again. Well, Eileen, thank you very much for putting the two of us together. You're like that person who has the fish tank and then they buy the two fighting fish and just put them in there just to watch them fight. Yeah, I believe we use it as a red flag for serial killers in the future. I have a mobile response team coming out to your house right now, Eileen. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, we better go quick then. Case one. Kid comes in. Tall, thin, male kid. Has this sudden onset chest pain. You're thinking pneumothorax. But you go and you listen to him and his breath sounds are completely symmetric. Do you still work him up? What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I have been fooled so many times. You listen to him, you go, there's nothing there. Let me get the x-ray. And you get the x-ray and the lung's like almost completely down. If you um, go just by your physical examination, you really can get fooled on these kids. In either smaller children or these tall, thin children, the transmission of breath sounds can often traverse the chest, and I don't rely on that physical exam finding. I do think we have to find the right balance between working everybody up who comes in with chest pain uh, versus those that have that more prototypical story and physical appearance. What's the workup? Ultrasound followed by chest x-ray, chest x-ray only, ultrasound only. I'll throw the ultrasound on, but I'm almost always going to wind up with the chest x-ray if I'm really suspicious. Yeah, I think outside of the patients who are more critically ill, who need to be laid supine in order to be assessed, I'm almost exclusively using chest x-ray. I agree. I have not been greatly successful in diagnosing small pneumothoraces, and I've noticed that in a couple studies. There are some studies that are like, ultrasound is great, ultrasound is amazing, but there are a number of studies where small pneumothoraces are missed on pediatric ultrasounds. I read a meta-analysis recently that gave ultrasound an 88% sensitivity for diagnosis of spontaneous pneumothoraces in pediatrics, and I think that's probably reasonable. The other issue, though, is sometimes we can miss them on chest x-ray as well. So I would do the x-ray and the ultrasound rather than just doing the x-ray, even though I don't expect much of myself when it comes to ultrasound. 
All right. So obviously the dysnic hypoxemic child or a kid who has attention pneumo, they're getting a thoracostomy. So are you guys doing a chest tube? Are you doing a pigtail? Do you have tips on sizing, tips on placement? How do you approach that? As far as which type of chest tube, I think most patients with simple pneumothoraces do very well with pigtail catheters. I think it's very much the exception that we're using a more traditional standard chest tube. The few exceptions really rest with the critically ill patients if there's concern for a hemothorax component, so if there's a trauma history, for example. But in general, I think most really do well with pigtail catheters. You know, having the head of the bed a little bit up is always a safe move. Putting the affected side up, getting their arms secured over their head, those are all the things that the textbooks have it right in terms of how to do it safely and effectively. But I'll do it a little bit differently. I do like the pigtails, and I'm not on anybody's speaker bureau or anything else, but I do like the cook kits. It's a Seldinger technique. You go in with a needle, and I'll go in fourth intercostal space, anterior axillary line, have the hand raised over their head. And I do it with them sitting almost completely upright because this really drives the diaphragm down. And then what I'll do is I'll straighten the pigtail out with the stylet. So you go in, you aspirate air, put your wire in, dilate them once or twice, depending on the kit you have. I'll put the pigtail in over the wire with the stylet in it while they're sitting up. And then I lay them completely supine. And the reason I do that is when I pull the stylet out, the pigtail is pretty soft. It'll just flop down. So it's kind of pointing down instead of up. So what I do is I lay them completely supine, hook the Heimlich valve up, and I let them take a couple of breaths while they're lying completely flat. The hope being that what I'm going to do is I'm going to inflate the lung, pin the pigtail against the posterior wall while they're lying supine. Then the the lung is going to hold it there. And then I'll take a 60cc syringe and hook it up to the stopcock and just start aspirating. So you open the stopcock to the chest, aspirate, close it to the chest, and then push it down so it goes out the Heimlich valve. And I'll aspirate them until I pull the whole pneumothorax out. And when you pull out, all of a sudden, the, the syringe will just catch and you won't be able to pull it out anymore. And you'll usually hear a yelp from the patient where it just pins the visceral pleura up against the parietal pleura and the pigtails in between. And then I'll just sit them back up. Usually what I find is that will lock the pigtail up by the apex of the lung. In the younger kids, again, I'm not a spokesperson for Cook, but they have these really nice wire-guided small chest tubes. They come in every size from 8 all the way up to 36. But usually what you'll do is you'll put a small 8, 10 French chest tube in these kids the exact same way. Hook it up to the Heimlich valve and the lung just comes up on its own. So let me just recap quickly what you said is your technique. So you will use one of the needle over the wire kits and you will do it initially with the patient sitting up. And then as soon as your pigtail is in place, before you open it up to the external atmosphere, you'll have the patient lay down. And then once you've opened it up, you will manually aspirate the air from the pneumothorax, thus sort of forcing the pigtail to be pinned between the newly expanded lung and the pleura. And then you will sit the patient back up with the Heimlich valve, not to water seal or suction. I happen to be a little bit different from Al in this in that I actually prefer water seal. That was a nice review of technique with that variation that Al's describing where you change the position from sitting up to lying down and then aspirate some of the air out before you hook it up to the Heimlich valve. If you're like me, then you probably just went back and listened to that five more times since it is so hard to visualize a verbal description of a procedure. I promise a procedure video will be coming. Let's move on and talk about size. Exactly how big does the drain need to be for a pneumothorax? How do you choose an appropriate size for a child? I just kind of eyeball them. If the kid's under two, they're going to get an eight. 
I go real small because the, the latest data says you don't need a big garden hose. Just anything that's in there that you can get the air out will work just fine. Between maybe six to 12, they're going to get a 10 or a 12. Typically, from a pigtail perspective, I would say eight to 12 French is the most common sizes that I reach for. Maybe occasionally a 14 in a much larger child, but I don't think it's as dependent on the size of the child as it is the nature of what's filling the pleural space. You know, simple air, I don't think needs a large tube. It's really as you get to hemothorax or empyema or something where you, I think, have to better consider the size of the tube that you're using. Now let's talk about anesthesia and procedural sedation. Is it needed? What do they recommend? When you are putting in a chest tube, what do you do in terms of sedation or anesthesia? Smaller children get ketamine, but the, the adolescents, whatever your favorite is, what works really, really well is remifentanil. It's kind of like fentanyl, but only lasts about five minutes and you run it as a drip. The kid 12 and up who's able to cooperate with you, local anesthesia alone seems to work really well. I do agree with you completely that I think local anesthesia is essential for this and probably the most important component. But in answer to your question, Eileen, ketamine is my favorite for nearly every painful procedure in pediatrics, whether they're small children or adolescents, and that's what I'm reaching for first. I had a number of spontaneous pneumothoraces throughout my life. One of them, unfortunately, happened when I was the single coverage attending in the pediatric ED where I had worked previously. So unfortunately, I was the attending. And it was a pediatric ED, so it was all pediatric residents that hadn't put in tons of chest tubes. And I was the one with the pneumothorax, and it was quite large, and I was very pregnant. And so the surgical R2 came over, and one of my friends was at a party and had brought a child in from the party who just had a head laceration just as a patient. He was there as well. He's an orthopedic surgeon. And the two of them put a chest tube into me with just local. And honestly, like it didn't hurt at all. And so I often do these with just local and the residents are like, oh my gosh, you're so mean. You don't want to sedate the child. It really didn't hurt at all. Like I hardly even noticed it was happening. That's a damn impressive story. In children or adolescents who've had multiple tubes in the past, that's probably sufficient. I think the anxiety level of not just the patient themselves, but the parents often do require at least a sniff of sedation. So you're saying give the ketamine to the parent <laughs> and the lidocaine to the child, because that works for me. Did I say that out loud? Yes. Remember, we're not talking about a chest tube here. A chest tube is very painful. There's blunt dissection through the pleura. And I think patients that are stable deserve some procedural sedation for that. This is a small pigtail catheter with a Seldinger technique and is much more amenable to local anesthetic if you have a cooperative patient but I think it's probably nice to offer something systemic as well. But really, the bigger question is, do you even need to do it in the first place? Most people would consider a moderate or large pneumothorax to start at two centimeters, and that's when you would really be talking about doing some intervention. When you say two centimeters, exactly how are you looking at that two centimeters? The way they measure it, the largest space where you see from the inside of the chest wall to the parietal pleura of the lung is where you measure your two centimeters. Now that is in a full-sized individual. I've seen different resources that talk about a two centimeter distance if you're looking at the apex, a three centimeter distance if you're looking at the lateral wall. But again, I think that can be helpful perhaps in terms of communicating with your surgical colleagues or trauma colleagues. But outside of that, I really don't use those hard and fast measurements to, to make a decision most of the time. Part of the problem is these kids are so asymptomatic. They don't come in because they're short of breath. They almost inevitably come in because they have chest pain. 
but they're holding a perfectly normal conversation with three people on their um, smartphone while they're sitting there. They're symptomatic. Go for it. But the problem you always have scratching your head, it's like kids not that symptomatic. They got a good, reliable parents. Which way do we go with those? Those are the ones that are a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I was surprised to read a statistic that only 43% of children with a spontaneous pneumothorax report any dyspnea. It's definitely much more of a pain issue that brings them to the ED than a dyspnea issue. But I often find that when probing, they usually do say, you know, it's bothersome to take a deep breath. I don't feel like I can breathe in quite as deeply, but I agree. It's not usually their presenting complaint. They did a um, study in France a couple of years ago, and there are a bunch of um, young adults and adolescents with spontaneous pneumothoraxes. They put in pigtails, never re-x-rayed them, never did anything, and sent them home. And then they brought them back two weeks later to x-ray them. Significant percentage of them still had these big pneumothoraxes, and the people said, oh, I feel perfectly fine. Thank you very much, doc. You know, if you've got good lungs, a pneumothorax is not that big of a deal. I don't worry too much about trending towards smaller and smaller tubes as much as I trend towards doing fewer and fewer tubes. If you admit these kids for observation, which I know it doesn't sound like Al ever does, he either sends them home or maybe something more invasive. Many of them stabilize, they don't get any bigger, and they can go home and and let them resolve on their own once you've established that they're not growing. And I I think probably Eileen will get to this, but I am not in the camp of, of sending these children home with tubes in their chest at this point. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a disagreement. You were probably listening up to this point thinking this is far too cordial to be called a smackdown. And guess what? You were right. It was far too cordial. And now they're going to disagree. They might even fight. Put in your mouth guard. Strap on your helmet. It's the smackdown. Smackdown. All right, so at this point in the interview, I'm kind of feeling as if no matter how big your pneumothorax is, if you're not massively symptomatic, Jeff is going to just admit you and watch you, and Al is going to either put in a pigtail or send you home. For me, the one that I'm not going to put a chest tube in, it's got to be pretty small pneumothorax. It's going to be certainly less than a centimeter. And for the most part, most of the time I've done this, it's only an apical pneumothorax. Like you had mentioned earlier, they're not going to have attention pneumothorax from it. They just don't get it. How comfortable are you if you feel the need that they've met the criteria for getting a tube? How often are you sending these patients home with a tube taped to their chest? So you're going to put them in, you're going to watch them for a little bit, and then I'll periodically try and aspirate again. Just you know, leave the syringe hooked up to the stopcock. If I go to aspirate again and I can aspirate air, that means that the lung's not staying up and they're going to have to stay in the hospital. But if the lung's up and they're perfectly stable, yeah, they can go home and come back the next day. Your own experience, Jeff, when you put the tubes in and you admitted them, how many of them did somebody call you the next day and say, that tube didn't work at all. We had to put a bigger tube in. We had to reposition it. Almost none of them. These people do well. The kids sit upstairs for a day. I hear what you're saying, Alan. I think there's certainly some validity. I I have yet to see a body of literature that really supports this practice in the pediatric population that's at all convincing. There may be a select group that you can do this. In my opinion, the emergency department population, the pediatric population specifically within that, it's not really all that conducive to outpatient management of indwelling tubes. I just don't think this is the population where we really have to target reducing our inpatient admissions. And in fact, I would argue that there's likely a population of kids for whom you put in a tube and send them home and do well that you could have just as easily not put in a tube, admitted them to the hospital for a night, and they would do well. So you're sort of left with the question is, which is a better outcome? An admission with no intervention who goes home the following day or an intervention without the admission who also does equally well from an outcomes perspective? 
I'm not saying there's a right or wrong, but I can certainly tell you my opinion. I would much rather have the admission for observation without having to put a chest tube in or a pigtail catheter in rather than have somebody out there wandering around with the tube in place. I think we have to distinguish the population that this six, eight-year-old, yeah, they're not going home. But we're talking about the older adolescent, almost anybody with a sizable, moderate pneumothorax, you're going to put a chest tube in them or a pigtail in them. That person would not have been the person who you would just sat in the hospital and watch them. They were getting a, a chest tube no matter what. So the question now becomes, really, if I put a tube thoracostomy in you, do you have to be admitted? You need to be in an institution where everybody's comfortable with this procedure and everybody's comfortable with, with the people going home. The rule should be these patients get admitted to the hospital. And the exception may be that there's a small subset whose fathers are emergency medicine legends who can go home. But for everybody else, for the just the commoners among us, Really, these patients, I think, deserve an inpatient admission, not only for therapy, for observation, for management, but also diagnostically. I think many of these patients end up undergoing other evaluations to determine whether they have any other underlying medical conditions, Marfan, Ehlers-Danlos, you name it, that may help dictate further care that can really get involved in an expedited way in the hospital setting compared to as an outpatient trying to fend for themselves with all these subspecialty appointments. Case 2. So on that topic, let me just take a 15-year-old, minimally symptomatic, has some pain, maybe a little dyspnea if you really, really dig, has about a two and a half centimeter pneumothorax. And this is a patient who it sounds like, Jeff, you're going to admit, Al, you're probably going to put a pigtail in and send home if the environment is appropriate. I want to hear exactly what's happening to these patients over the next day or two. They're typically admitted on supplemental oxygen. I know there's some debate as to how useful it is in many of these patients, but I think it's a certainly a relatively low-risk intervention for at least a short period of time. And they're really being admitted for both clinical observation as well as serial radiographs to determine whether this is changing over time. And after several hours, you know, maybe 12 to 24 hours of stability or hopefully decreasing size, these patients can go home. On the other hand, if they're expanding, then my colleagues on the inpatient side, they're discussing with the patient at what points intervention is necessary. So if they don't already have a chest tube, they may get one as an inpatient. So Al, if you have an older teenager that you have deemed appropriate to place a pigtail and send home on a Heimlich valve, same question for you. What's going on at home over the next couple of days? Actually, they love it. It's like, you know, they, they can't get enough pictures of it to post on, um, on YouTube and whatnot. Couple things. One is if you've put in the, the, the wire guided tube and it's, say it's a 14 gauge, which is the size of our, our pigtails, all you need is a CVP dressing kit that goes over it. So you don't need any gauze or, or Vaseline gauze or anything like that that goes over it. They go home, they're told any shortness of breath, any problem, you're going to come back. We're going to see you tomorrow. We're going to reevaluate you tomorrow, make sure that everything's in good position. We've made arrangements with pediatric surgeon, thoracic surgeon, whoever is going to follow up with you. They should go home on um, antibiotics. They should get antibiotics at the time the tube is placed as well. If they have the Heimlich valve in, they can't get a tension pneumo, which is the only real risk. You're not going to have them shower. You know, they're going to take, you know, a sink bath with a sponge. But, you know, I've never heard a teenager who objected to being told they don't have to shower. And I think there is a body of literature out there that's pretty supportive of outpatient management of these cases. All right. So let's take the very minor patient, tiny apical pneumo not terribly symptomatic at all. No one's thinking that they're going to place a chest tube in this patient. No one's even really thinking this is anything other than a small pneumo. A, do you admit? 
And B, if you're going to watch the child, do you watch them in the ED for a certain period of time and get serial imaging? And C, do you put them on oxygen? The first answer is I do admit every patient who has a pneumothorax or pneumomediastinum, regardless of size. I think they deserve a period of observation. Typically, I do admit them on oxygen, although when they're very small, I'm willing to forego that. I do think they are candidates for outpatient management. Touch base with your consultant, make sure everybody's on the same page, let them go home, let them come back the next day. In terms of serial chest x-rays, how long you watch them in the ED, I think it depends on your history. If the history is, you know, uh, Sunday during the Super Bowl, we jumped up and, you know, I got this sharp pain and now it's Tuesday and they're showing up in the ED. It's entirely possible that that little sliver was bigger on Monday and just slowly resorbed on its own, but it's not going to get a whole lot bigger Tuesday than what you're starting with. So I think they're decent candidates to go home. If it happened 15 minutes ago, I'm going to watch them in the ED for a couple hours at least. Another question that sometimes comes up is, can you put in a needle aspirate all the air out that you can, and then take the whole thing out. In other words, never even put in an indwelling tube. Al, Jeff, and Eileen all agreed that's probably a setup for failure, and there's really not evidence to support that approach. Now, you had talked about literature, and the reason that I had brought up this topic to you guys and asked about doing this is because I had been reading an interesting article that was published recently, the end of 2021. The lead author is Lou, and it was published in Peds Respiratory Reviews. And it was a center that had had kind of an algorithm for dealing with pediatric spontaneous pneumothoraces. And then they looked at how patients were doing with their algorithm and then redrew their algorithm based on patient outcomes. And in this study, they looked at kids with primary spontaneous pneumothoraces. They observed them for four hours in the ED and just made sure that the pneumothorax wasn't getting bigger. They weren't unstable in any way. They didn't have clinically significant symptoms. If none of those things occurred, then for the kids who were under 12, they did what you did, Jeff. They observed them without intervention on the ward overnight. If they were 12 or over, they actually discharged them without any intervention at all. On the other hand, if they didn't meet those criteria, they weren't stable, they had a lot of symptoms, or the pneumothorax increased in size, in those cases, they went ahead and they put in a pigtail and they put the chest tube to water seal, and then they followed them on the wards. Well, the thing that I thought was riveting to me about this paper was that in their prior algorithm, they had defined size. So they were looking at the small pneumothoraces of less than three centimeters and the larger pneumothoraces of three centimeters or more and putting patients on a flow chart based on that. But when they redid the algorithm, they didn't put size into it. And so even for me, and I have to say, I love sending these people home. Well, I would argue that that trajectory is more important than a snapshot in time. So stability over time or decrease over time, we do have a fairly good sense of what the natural history of these things are once they are decreasing in size. I hear you, what you're saying, that intervention is not all that significant. But if you can get away without the intervention, then why not? If it's not going to make a dramatic change in their symptoms, because again, we were talking about patients who are not significantly symptomatic, and it's not going to make a difference in terms of their medium to long-term outcome, then why introduce foreign material, trauma, et cetera, et cetera, to the patient if it's not necessary? If there's an intervention I can do that's relatively painless, relatively simple, relatively safe, I think I'd rather do that than just watch somebody. 
you told your pneumothorax story. I was the first person they cardioverted and sent home from the ED because like you, I wouldn't stay in the hospital. So yeah. Jeff, do you have any odd medical stories you want to share? <laughs> have you had typhoid? I, I, I had a spontaneous pneumothorax when I was born. I had a chest tube in the neonatal intensive care unit. But outside of that, I've let a fairly knock on wood boring medical life. Oh my gosh. But you know what? We need to give a shout out to the neonates because we always forget them. And pneumothoraces are not that rare in the neonatal population. They happen, I think, almost 1% of the time. And it is a little bit different of a scenario. I mean, putting somebody on oxygen for a pneumothorax does cause it to resolve a little bit faster, but it's certainly not a panacea. And with the potential oxygen toxicity to the neonatal brain, and I'm so sorry if you got oxygen, Jeff. No, you know, present company excluded, of course. We actually don't recommend giving oxygen to a non-hypoxemic patient who has a pneumothorax as a neonate. And they also are very loath to put chest tubes in these patients unless they're incredibly symptomatic or it's incredibly large, even if they are in a ventilator. I think you answered your own question. I think you're fairly certain that I did receive oxygen in the neonatal period. Could have been Al Sacchetti, if only not for the oxygen. Oh my goodness. Well, you guys, thank you so much. It has been fun as always. I'm really glad that we chatted about this. I thought it was a lot of good material and thank you. Thanks, Eileen. Thank you both very much. Summary. Fortunately, the boys are right. The pediatric literature is sparse enough that it's relatively easy to summarize. In 2019, the PREDICT study showed that 45% of pediatric pneumothoraces were managed conservatively, and 19% were discharged primarily from the ED. 20% were aspirated with success rates of 52%, and there was a 73% recurrence rate over seven years. There were a few meta-analyses looking at operative management like VATS, and not shockingly, those patients had less of a chance of recurrence than those managed conservatively or merely with aspiration or chest tubes. Brown did a reasonably sized study of patients 14 to 50, so not exclusively adolescent, but certainly including adolescents, and found that conservative management was non-inferior for moderate to large pneumothoraces when compared with chest tube placement. However, in the group that was managed conservatively, there were fewer adverse events, 10% versus 32, and less recurrence, 9% versus 17. 15% of those conservatively managed required a subsequent intervention. Now, if you want to take a closer look at the protocol that Eileen described in the paper by Nathan Liu, it is linked in the show notes. The paper is called Update and Management of Pediatric Primary Spontaneous Pneumothorax. There was lots of good teaching points covered in this segment. I think it's easy when it's easy, right? The big pneumothorax that's causing pain and dyspnea. Of course, you're going to put in a pigtail catheter and admit the patient. A small apical pneumothorax that's minimally symptomatic. Maybe you just repeat an x-ray in a few hours. Maybe you admit them for observation. But it's really these ones in the middle that they were describing. Do you bother putting in a pigtail catheter in a small to moderate-sized pneumothorax that's minimally symptomatic? Do you admit the patient? Do you do nothing and just admit and observe them? Neither approach is wrong, and there's not much literature to support one versus the other. It's going to be a judgment call based off of your level of comfort as well as your patient, their symptoms, their ability to return to the emergency department or obtain prompt follow-up care where you work. This conundrum comes up in other clinical circumstances as well. Admission with no intervention versus intervention with no admission. Maybe they're equivalent, and depending on your circumstances, you may lean more towards one than the other. Great discussion. Thanks, everyone. It's time again for... It's, uh, it's critical care... 
mailbag. All right, Scott, how's it going, man? Good to talk to you again. Uh, so good to talk to you always, Swami. Scott, we have a topic to get into that I'm going to be honest with you. This is not a letter from a listener. This is a letter from me to you. Dear Scott, oh, how I hate to write. Actually, I think this is one that you have been really wanting to get into for a while. It's almost like years ago when we first started doing these, you wanted to do it, kind of lost track because other things came in, and now we're getting back to it, and it's the neurocritical care intubation. I had a, a young patient who got hit in the head with a baseball bat, and Scott, I'm going to go ahead and let you guess the gender of the patient. Oh, it's got to be male. Oh, of course it was. I mean, we know anytime someone gets hit in the head with a baseball bat, probably a guy. So the patient is obtunded. He's not really protecting his airway. There are clear signals that we need to intubate this patient. The initial vital signs are okay. A little tachycardic around 113, pressure is 170 over 100. Patient's got a good room air oxygen saturation of 100%. We see these cases pretty often, especially if you work in a trauma center, we see blunt head injury in young patients all the time. We know that this patient needs an airway, but this is not the typical airway. This is not the typical intubation that we do. It looks pretty easy from the outside, but clearly there are some challenges here. So what do I have to be worried about in intubating this patient? The thing is, we're going to be discussing neurocritical intubations. And what that really should be thought of is high ICP intubations. That's really where this categorization occurs. That's what separates out a concussed patient who may have had too much to drink, in which case your standard RSI is going to be fine, versus a patient with a traumatic brain injury or an aneurysmal subarachnoid or hemorrhagic stroke or what have you. That is really the cut point for when you start doing things differently. Now, on your patient, I don't know if he has an elevated ICP or not, but the thing is, the true neurocritical care intubation we're going to talk about is not meant for your patient regardless because this patient needs an airway now. And the quintessential neurocritical care intubation we're going to discuss is for a patient who has been gradually declining. They have already an injury pattern that you know could be associated with ICP. Now their mental status starts slipping away. You know, your aneurysmal subarachnoids are the prototypical case here that you don't think they need to be intubated. They're responding to commands and then they kind of fade down on their uh, Glasgow coma scale, their motor scale. And you're like, I think I should take their airway. Well, that's a patient who has a unsecured aneurysm, which if you spike their ICP, it could rebleed. That's not a great case. On your case, Swami, I would just do probably a perfect RSI. And that's actually really good because I think that when we see those patients, we think, do I need to change my approach? And you're saying, probably not in that patient. Go ahead and do what you usually do, which we know we're quite good at. But then let's change the scenario a little bit to that aneurysmal subarachnoid. And we, we do see these quite often. And you're right. Often they come in and they're talking to you, they're following commands, they might even have a relatively normal neurologic exam. You go to CT, you get your diagnosis, you're waiting for neurosurge or neurology to come evaluate the patient, and the nurse comes and gets you and says, you know, they look a little more sleepy. They're not really responding the way they were before. Now you're worried about that mental status, you're worried about that airway. Let's get into that case. How does that change your approach in terms of looking at it and saying, well, I think the ICP is elevated and that's a problem. How does that change how you approach that intubation? Yeah, I'm going to take you step by step, Swami, and you interrupt if uh, you have any questions or I'm not making anything clear. The first thing to understand is philosophically, there's a bunch of non-pharmacologic things that should be going through your mind, which is the longer and more ham-handed the intubation is, the bigger potential for reflex increase in intracranial pressure. So this really should be done by a skilled laryngoscopist, and it should really be done 
in a way that is the least amount of pressure on those posterior pharyngeal structures. So for me, that means an experienced person with video laryngoscopy, because that will mean less lifting to get the same view. And the experience means that I'm going to be in there for a shorter amount of time, and I'm probably not going to be at risk for hypoxia like I would if an amateur was there. So keep that in mind. You're going to pre-oxygenate these patients because, again, hypoxia is deleterious to patients with any form of brain injury. The next thing that I think gets missed a lot in emergency medicine is you want to control the blood pressure before the intubation. And for most of these bleeds, that means at the maximum 140 systolic. And getting there before you intubate on a patient you have time means you're already in a better starting place than if they were already 180 and you're just like, well, I'll just intubate them and figure out it afterwards. No, that, that's not the great way to go. So I would have these patients on an icardipine or clavidipine drip before the actual airway management even starts. And if their blood pressure seems okay, I like to have one of those two in the room. Is that your practice as well, Swami? I think it is. And, and I know nicardipine is becoming pretty ubiquitous in most places. Clavidipine may be a little less. I do have some colleagues who have neither of those medications. What's your third choice if you have neither clavidipine or nicardipine? Ooh, I mean, get nicardipine. It's a generic drug. <laughs> There's absolutely no reason not to have it. And it is the agent for ED hypertensive emergencies. If you don't have it, then I'm not sure how you're managing hypertensive emergencies because that is basically the drug for everything at this stage of the game for EDs that don't have things like clavidipine. So if you don't have it, get it. It's cheap. Your pharmacy will approve it. Get rid of all the stupid things that don't work as well. This is a pure afterload reducer without any effects on the heart. It's perfect. Just get nicardipine. Okay. So the first thing that we need to do is take care of that blood pressure if it's very elevated. Our goal is going to be 140 systolic. Nicardipine or clavidipine are going to be our go-to drugs. We're going to start that trip. We're going to start to lower the blood pressure while we're getting everything else ready. Scott, this may not be the next place you are going to, but one of the questions that I always come across with these patients is, do I need to pre-medicate for that intubation? Remembering back to when I learned intubation and all of the different pre-medication things that we had, and most of them have kind of fallen by the wayside and we don't use them anymore, but is this a patient where I should be pre-medicating before I'm pushing the rest of my drugs. Yeah, I think definitely. And that's the difference between a neurocritical intubation and the patient you initially presented, who you don't have time for all that pretreatment, so you shouldn't worry about it. Lidocaine was in there for a while. I don't think its evidence is very good IV. It actually is very effective at blunting the cough response when given topically, but I think it's a pain in the butt. And if the patient starts coughing from your infiltration of the lidocaine, it, it seems like kind of you know, you haven't really gained much ground. You know, it might prevent it during the intubation, but you're causing it in the pretreatment. I, so I don't bother. I don't use lidocaine. Now, what does work is fentanyl, but there's a few caveats. First of all, the dose you use is probably too low. Not you, Swami. I mean, you, the listener. Because um, <laughs> You don't know that. I, I, I might be I'm using just giving you the benefit too. of the doubt, buddy. What, I don't want to make right you feel bad. Here? I want to preserve that ego. The dose probably should be somewhere around five micrograms per kilogram. So that's a lot of fentanyl. And the nurse is going to look awry a sconce rather, and they're not going to be happy with you, right? But that's really the dose. So somewhere like 350, you know, 400 micrograms of fentanyl. Now, the problem with that is A, it needs to be given, you know, probably four or five minutes before the actual intubation if it's going to have effect. Otherwise, you know, it just takes effect after the intubation. You are not blunting the reflex response, which is what that fentanyl is for. So then why bother having given it? So it has to be given early. But the problem is in those dose ranges, apnea is a possibility. 
So if you're going to give the fentanyl at those doses, which you should, you need to have everything else ready before you push the fentanyl. So that means everything is prepared at the bedside for intubation. You're standing there at the head of the bed, monitoring the patient's end tidal CO2. You push the fentanyl, and then you wait the five minutes, but you're waiting, watching that if the patient became apneic, then you're going to push your induction and paralytic agent to intubate at that moment and not wait the five minutes. But many of these patients will keep breathing. Now, really what should be used is ramifentanil, which is a ultra short acting version of fentanyl, but it has not come off generic, even though this was the agent of choice 20 years ago, when I was learning with the anesthesiologist how to do this, it's still not generic as far as I know, very expensive. So you can't use it, but that will be the agent of choice because that takes effect instantly. So you could, you know, right before your induction agent, push the Remy, that'd be great. I'm giving fentanyl in pretty much all of my patients who I care about any reflex increase in ICP. And logistically, Scott, are you giving that fentanyl dose before you're starting your blood pressure agent or does it not really matter? I know fentanyl doesn't cause a lot of hypotension, but in that dose, do you have any worries that, well, I've started my nicardipine or my clividipine, I've gotten my blood pressure to a good range, and now I give the fentanyl and it might actually drop more? So the nice thing about fentanyl is it has no intrinsic effects on blood pressure. All it does is knock down sympathetic tone. So in most of these patients, you will not see a big drop with the blood pressure with the fentanyl, unlike your uh, stab wound to the belly who is maintaining purely on the whiffs of their own endogenous catechols. But if it does happen, then just, you know, turn down your nicardipine drip, you'll be fine. You're not going to see a precipitous drop from the fentanyl in the cases I've seen. Now, the next agent that's kind of plus or minus, it does work, but it's a pain in the ass. And most of the time I don't even bother is esmolol. And that really hits the inotropic and chronotropic side of why their blood pressure may spike. You know, if they have an episurge, this will blunt that to some extent. I think it's more trouble than it's worth. The doses where you actually get an effect are much higher than we're used to doing. So I don't use esmolol. I don't use lidocaine. It's pretty much just fentanyl and the pretreatment of blood pressure as mentioned. But the things you should have drawn up before you actually move to your induction, for me, is I will have a push-dose vasopressor drawn up. Some of these patients, even though they start off really high, will actually drop their blood pressure, and hypotension is really bad for brain injury. So I'll have push-dose epinephrine drawn up, and then I'll actually have a syringe full of nicardipine as well. And you know, for the patients who did not need the drip to start with, but then all of a sudden spike their blood pressure during the intubation itself, I could just ask for 0.25 milligrams of nicardipine to be pushed, which is the exact equivalent of the max dose of the infusion. That's 15 milligrams an hour. The equivalent of that is 0.25 milligrams as a push. And that will allow me to immediately temporize a reflex increase in the patient's blood pressure. All right. So I've started my agent to lower the blood pressure. I've given fentanyl. If the pressure was okay beforehand, then you're going to make sure that you have push nicardipine ready Regardless, you're going to have a push-dose vasopressor available in case the patient's pressure goes low. What are my next steps before I'm giving those induction and paralytic agents? So most of these patients, if they're neurocritical intubations, actually are being intubated because their ICP is increasing. And you could tell that by the bleed getting larger or the actual signs of the optic nerve on the CT scan, which is probably the best way of assessing intracranial pressure increase on CT scans, or ultrasound will tell you as well. But there's not too many other reasons why these patients start getting obtunded worse than they already were, except that their ICP is increasing. I think, and there's not great evidence for this, but this is my practice, that a dose of the osmotic agent of choice is a really good way to go right now because you will actually get the ICP lowering effects during the intubation itself. 
So I will actually give these patients a 30 ml bolus of 23.4% hypertonic saline. Most places don't have access to that. It's just fine to give them 250 cc's of 3% as well. We were all told that mannitol was the go-to for dropping the ICP. It has blood pressure issues. So you're going with hypertonic and not reaching for mannitol in these patients, even though their blood pressure was high to begin with. Yeah, if that's what you got, that's what you got. The problem with mannitol is as long as it's infused correctly, it does not lower the blood pressure by the administration of mannitol. If you gave it too quickly, it would. The problem with mannitol is it lowers the blood pressure by the patient peeing out insane amounts of free fluid that you then don't replace. And so you don't actually get the control of blood pressure with mannitol when you want it, which is pre-intubation. What you get is profound post-intubation hypotension, which is really bad. So I think it's just a more clever move in the ED where you don't have the nursing staffing ratio you may have in a neurocritical care ICU to just use hypertonic saline, which I think in the ED is a much safer agent. All right. So 250 cc's of 3%. That's what most people are going to have access to. If you have the 23.4%, you can use 30 mLs of that instead. We've given the fentanyl, we've controlled the blood pressure. Now are we ready? Yeah, we're ready to pick our induction agent and muscle yeah, so relaxant. That's, the, that's where I want to go next. What are the agents that I'm reaching for for induction and paralysis? So for the induction, you might say propofol would be a good choice. You know, their blood pressure is high and it makes sense. And we know it decreases the cerebral metabolic rate. So it has salutary effects on the ICP. Problem with it is I, I do see a lot of post-intubation hypotension when using propofol. For whatever reason, when you put them on the positive pressure and it all sorts out, the patient who was 180 beforehand is now a systolic of 85, and that's not great for that brain. That brain needs the cerebral perfusion pressure. So I like something stable. And the most cardiac stable agent for these cases in general is an agent I don't reach for in many other circumstances, which is Atomidate. Because Atomidate will just leave them where they are. It pretty much leaves them untouched. And then you are controlling extrinsically all the other vital signs with your other agents. So then I'm just taking the induction agent out of the mix. Now, some of our international listeners won't have Atomidate. Some of them won't have even heard of Atomidate because it hasn't been in their emerges for like, uh, you know, 20 years. For those patients, I actually like Ketofol. And, you know, whatever mix you want, whether it be, you know, 75% propofol, 25% ketamine, or the standard 50-50 mix, I find that to be a very hemodynamically stable agent that still gets the benefits of the propofol on cerebral metabolic rate. Uh, it gets potentially some beneficial effects of ketamine, but it does not spike their blood pressure like ketamine alone is. So my actual practice when I don't have Atomidate available is a 75-25 mix of propofol and ketamine. It does not need to be put in the same syringe. You could just give those separately, but that would be the way I'd go. Now, if you're, again, an international listener, because it was taken out of the uh, pharmacopoeia in the U.S. due to its use for fatal injection, thiopental is a very nice agent as well. I actually like that a little bit more than propofol, and I think it's a little bit more stable. And what paralytic are you reaching for here? Okay. This is where you really have to split off into expert players and people that are not expert players. That probably is a nice way of describing that. Because I would always use rocuronium in these patients for two reasons. One, we already have the post-intubation sedation and pain control at the bedside before we intubate. So there's no chance I'm going to have a paralyzed patient spiking their ICP because their cerebral metabolic rate has gone up to crazy because you've given them rock and atomidate and then forgotten that they actually need immediate post-intubation sedation, like heavy sedation, because otherwise their brain ICP is going to increase from you know, their absolute misery. So rock is fine in those patients. The other thing is I have sigmetics, which means that if I need an exam afterwards, I could get it. If you are a player who does not understand the need for immediate sedation and you cannot reverse it, 
then succinylcholine may be a better choice in these patients because you will be able to get an exam very quickly and the patient will show you that they need the post-intubation sedation. Let's talk about that post-intubation sedation and analgesia. We said we had everything ready to go. You didn't want to use propofol as your intubating agent. Is that your go-to for sedation? And are you just going to continue the fentanyl as your analgesia? Or is there anything different in these patients? Yeah, I, I will start them on propofol right away. Now, we may transition to dexmedetomidine. And you and I talked about that agent in another show, Swami. But dexmedetomidine is too slow to actually get them sedated right away. So they'll always be started on propofol. It's probably the best agent in these patients. And you know, you're not going to have those same blood pressure problems because you're not bolusing it. You're just starting at a drip. And then I will start them on a fentanyl drip. And now my standard practice is to never use opioid drips for post-intubation sedation. There's an accumulation. It's a problem. But for the neurocritical care patients, just for the benefit of my neurosurgeons, they like to be able to turn things off. And if I gave what I normally did, which is just a nice big hit of hydromorphone, they get pissed. So I will just start a propofol and fentanyl drip on these patients. After I've started all of those things, I want to talk about ventilation. I think sometimes we ignore the ventilation. Are the standard settings applicable here or should I be doing anything different? The standard settings are applicable with the understanding that you need to get the CO2, the PaCO2, very quickly into a tight range. Now, the end tidal CO2 could be your friend in one direction, but not the other. If the end tidal CO2 is greater than 35, increase the respiratory rate until the end tidal hits 35. If on the other hand, the end tidal is low, it does not mean decrease the respiratory rate on the ventilator. And that is a real big pitfall because it might just be a sign of EQ mismatch or shunting and the sicker the patient are, the more likely that is. So if you see an end tidal of 20, please, please, please do not decrease the respiratory rate on that vent. So what you'll do is if the end tidal is greater than 35, increase the respiratory rate until the end tidal hits 35 and then send a blood gas. If the end tidal is less than 35, just send a blood gas. Do not touch that ventilator setting. So start them at the same standard. You know, For me, it's 8 cc's per kg of tidal volume, ideal or predicted body weight, and then something like 16 breaths a minute. And then look at the end tidal. If the end tidal is greater than 35, increase until the end tidal hits 35 and then send a blood gas. It could be venous or arterial. I don't care, but get it done right away because you really want to dial that CO2 into 35 to 38 on these patients. And we didn't talk about this, Scott, but clearly this patient who's on multiple different agents that can drop the blood pressure, they have a pathology that can raise the blood pressure and we want to keep it in a narrow window really benefit from an arterial line if you can get that done as soon as possible. Yeah. You know, I don't want to piss off the listeners, so I don't mention it as often in these critical care mailbags because most people listening don't have access, but I would always put an A-line in pre-induction on a true neurocritical care intubation. Summary. All right, let's go back and review all of the things that we are changing in this neurocritical care intubation. First, starting with the fact that if you have that patient with head trauma that needs to be intubated, you're not really going down this pathway. This is really for the patient where you might have an established diagnosis already. You're worried about increased ICP because the patient is deteriorating in front of you. And in those patients, you have a little bit more time and you want to use that time wisely to make sure you don't spike that ICP during your intubation. So number one, we are going to control their blood pressure shooting for a systolic of under 140. Nicardipine and clavidipine are going to be our go-to agents. We're going to pre-treat with fentanyl because that's going to reduce some of the catecholamine surge that comes from laryngoscopy. So we're going to give them a dose of fentanyl. It's a five milligram per kilogram dose, and you need to give it at least five minutes before you're going to intubate in order for it to actually have its effect. We're going to give them an osmotic agent where we're going to be reaching for hypertonic saline, either 3% if that's all you got, or 23.4% if you have that. Make sure you have the right doses with that higher concentration. You're only going to be giving about 30 mLs. With the 3%, which is what most of us have, you're going to give a 250 cc dose of that 
hypertonic saline. And now we're moving into the intubation itself and our agents. We're going to be reaching for here Atomidate and Rocuronium as our goes to. If you don't have Atomidate, you could use that propofol ketamine mix. And then don't forget to have your post intubation sedation and analgesia ready to go right away. These are typically going to be infusions of propofol and fentanyl because they're easily turned off, which means that your neuro team, your neurosurgery team can rapidly evaluate that patient. And then when you ventilate, make sure that you are shooting for eucapnia. If the end tidal CO2 is over 35, you can raise that respiratory rate a little bit. If it's less than 35, don't lower the respiratory rate, get an ABG or a VBG and see what the CO2 actually is in order to titrate your vent properly. Damn, that's good, Swami. Now, I will say one thing, just so the farm nerds don't come after me, pelting me with like uh, rocks and stuff, <laughs> is I am fully aware turning off that fentanyl in contradistinction to the propofol does nothing. I just want to placate the neurosurgeons. Uh, turning off that fentanyl and waiting three minutes has done nothing for the patient's fentanyl levels. But, but they, they feel get fine super pissed when you give the hydromorphone. All right, fair enough, fair enough. And, and you're right. Every time that I've given the hydromorphone and the neurosurgeon comes down, they're quite angry at me. So that's fine. I will go with the fentanyl drip knowing that their pharmacology might be a little bit behind our pharmacology. All right, Scott, thank you for finally getting into this topic. Of course, we will drop a link to your podcast on this topic. I think all of these things can go together in order to give us the best approach to intubating the neurocrit patient. Such a pleasure to talk about this with you, Swami. Absolutely. So several years ago, when I was still a resident, I was working in a small rural emergency room. It wasn't remote, but it was pretty rural. We had labs and x-rays and even an ultrasound, but there was no CT scan and there were no specialists on site. You know who it is, Cardi V. And we're talking rural medicine, a rural, as in out there, uh, rural. Rural medicine talks. The nearest scan and specialists were a few hours away on a pretty sketchy road. So I was working a string of evening shifts and on my first shift of that stretch, I grabbed a chart. It's a nine-year-old female patient presenting with intermittent fevers for three days. She had no past medical history of any significance. She had no allergies. She was fully vaccinated. According to her parents, she'd had a normal childhood development, but they'd only recently moved to the province and had never been seen at that hospital before or within that healthcare network, so we had no files that we could really check. So they were coming in because for the previous three days, the patient had been having fevers in the evening. She would feel fine in the morning, go to school all day, but in the evening would get tired and have fever and chills. Her documented fevers range between 38.5 Celsius to 39 Celsius at home. 101.3 to 102.2 Fahrenheit. Parents would give her acetaminophen, she'd go to bed, and then she'd wake up feeling fine. And then the pattern repeated itself each day. She had no reported URTI symptoms, no nausea, no vomiting, no diarrhea, and she had no urinary symptoms. Her parents did say that she had a bit less of an appetite in the evenings when she was febrile, but otherwise, during the day, she was eating well and sleeping well. They brought her in that night because it had been the third day and it just seemed odd to them, so they wanted her to be checked out. When I saw her, she was a well-looking child who was afebrile. This was about two hours post acetaminophen at triage where her temp had been 38.9 oral, and the rest of her vitals were all within normal limits. She was well hydrated, she was interacting normally, and she had a normal head and neck, respiratory, cardiac, and abdominal exam. I had a quick look at her skin. I will admit that I did not fully undress her at this point, and I didn't see anything of concern, and neurologically she was moving about the room normally, acting totally fine. So after reviewing the case with my staff, we determined that this was technically fever of unknown origin, but it was probably from an underlying viral issue in an otherwise healthy and well-appearing child. We gave them instructions to monitor for symptoms, keep an eye on her intake and output, and to keep on top of hydration, and of course told her to come back if there are any concerns. And then we moved on to the rest of the patients. 
So what do you think? Is that reasonable? Fever of unknown origin in a nine-year-old girl. So good history, good physical exam, nothing to suggest anything bad. I think that's completely reasonable. A little wait and see. Most of the time, this isn't going to be anything. This is going to be a viral syndrome, unclear etiology. It's going to get better. But the key thing is tell the people to come back if it deviates from the normal. It continues. It gets worse. Anything new happens. And uh, guess what happens? The next evening, I was back in the emergency room, and so was she. I saw her name pop up on the triage list and asked my staff if I should see her. He said that it would be great for continuity of care, so in I went. She was there with her parents again and seemed generally the same as the day before. She'd slept fine after being discharged from ER the night before, and she'd been afebrile upon waking. She'd actually stayed home from school that day because she'd been pretty tired from the emergency room visit, but she had good energy during the day and she'd eaten well. However, in the late afternoon, she grew more tired again and was hot to touch, and when her mum checked her temperature, it was 39 degrees oral. So they'd given her acetaminophen and brought her in. Again, on exam, she was well hydrated, she was alert, she was moving about normally. There was nothing new on physical exam, except she was a wee bit tachycardic with a heart rate of 110, and she had a temperature of 38.2. This time it was only about an hour since her triage acetaminophen dose when I saw her. On paper, I was still thinking that this was likely a benign viral infection, but of course, anytime a patient comes back with the same problem, I think we all start to question ourselves a bit. As we should, right? We ask patients to come back if they don't improve or if things get worse because sometimes disease processes take time to present. And of course, because also we sometimes we make mistakes. So I reviewed the case with my staff and we debated about whether or not we should do investigations for this young patient. So to complicate the issue, she was very scared of needles and became somewhat hysterical at the thought of her blood being taken. And given how well she looked, we actually opted not to do blood tests at this time. We did get a urinalysis because we thought that that was probably the likeliest source of an occult infection, but her dip and urinalysis came back clean. I also did have her fully undressed this time to make sure that there were no rashes or lesions that we were missing, and we were reassured to see that her skin was clear and her neuro exam was totally normal. So we chatted with her parents, reassured them again, and gave them the same discharge instructions. I could see they were a bit frustrated, and mostly I think because they were concerned that we weren't giving them any concrete answers and they didn't have a definitive diagnosis for what was going on with their daughter. And so after they left, the staff and I rediscussed this case to see if there were any things that we should have done differently. We tried to think about what tests we could do in our rural shop and if that would have changed management. She had no respiratory symptoms, she had no TB contacts, and she'd not traveled anywhere outside of the region. She had no GI symptoms at all, except a bit of loss of appetite when febrile, which really is pretty normal. She hadn't had any recent surgical procedures, she'd had no joint pains or swelling that could suggest a rheumatologic cause, and she had no gynae symptoms, and luckily, at the age of nine, she was not pregnant. Looking for a white count didn't seem particularly useful, as she looks so well and we can't just treat a white count. Now, of course, if it was alarmingly elevated or alarmingly low, we would have pursued in further investigations, but she just looked so well, it was really hard to think that this was going to be what clinched our diagnosis. So we felt good generally about the decision and the plan, and we went on with our shift. And it all seems reasonable. I think if you had 10 kids like this, nine of them, nothing's going to happen. It's just going to be fever for a few days, and then it goes away. But of course, the differential diagnosis of fever without a source is enormous, rheumatologic, infectious, carcinogenic, and on it goes. So if she keeps coming back, then the workup is going to get bigger than Ben-Hur. 
Well, I say we felt good about it because, of course, her case was certainly in the back of my mind as I kept on working that evening. And the following evening, when I showed up to work, I went straight to the monitor to look for her name, hoping against hope that it wouldn't be there. But there it was. She was back, and she was febrile. Again. Her temp was 38.9, one hour post-acetaminophen. She was tacky at 115. The rest of her vitals were stable. I was very nervous to go and see this patient for a third time now because I imagined that worried parents wouldn't want a doctor in training to be the only one seeing their child. I mean, my staff had checked the patient out the previous two nights, but this time I actually asked the staff to lead the discussion and asked if I could just sort of sit in and watch as I was nervous I was missing something. My staff was great, they agreed, and in we went. Maddeningly, the patient's story was almost exactly the same as on the previous presentations. Her fever had returned a little bit earlier in the evening than usual, and she seemed a bit more tired this evening, and she'd eaten maybe a bit less on the previous days. But again, her parents hadn't really worried too much about this because she's had several evenings in a row now of spending time in emergency rooms. One thing that did come up, though, and only when we asked about it specifically, was that when she was napping, she apparently had an episode of urinary incontinence. Her parents said that this used to happen when she was younger and febrile. She seemed to sleep so soundly that she didn't wake up with the need to void, and they hadn't even really thought that much about it. It was really only when we asked the specific question that they volunteered this information. There were no other focal symptoms of any sort apart from a mild headache that developed while in the emergency room waiting room, and on physical exam, the staff found nothing focal. She was definitely a bit more tired than the previous two evenings, but nothing remarkable on exam. And I mean, the staff did a really in-depth neuro exam and found nothing. But we all agreed that even though this exam was reassuring, it was now time for some investigations. So we ordered a CBC, electrolytes, glucose, creatinine, liver enzymes, a CRP, repeat urinalysis and culture, blood cultures, and a chest x-ray. The poor girl was not happy and it took a dose of midazolam to calm her down enough to do the labs. But in the end, she was a trooper and we got what we needed. So do you think uh, that what I would call lab trolling is appropriate at this point. I'm probably going to get in trouble and say, I think it is. I think a third presentation, fever without a source, looks good, but this is a real fever. This isn't going away. It's probably still just a viral syndrome. But I think a little bit of trolling is not inappropriate in this case. The UA was negative, the chest x-ray was normal, the creat electrolytes and glucose were normal, the liver enzymes were normal, and the blood and urine cultures were sent off and were cooking. The CRP machine was, of course, broken, so that was annoying, but the CBC did show a white blood cell count of 14 with the very slightest of left shifts. No unusual-looking cells on the differential, and she was not anemic. Her platelets were slightly elevated, as I would expect with a febrile illness, but there was nothing here upon which we could hang our increasingly frustrated hats. We considered at that point to send her a few hours away for further investigations, but we were trying to think what investigations would we even ask for in this patient. This was right around the time when the push to irradiate children less was hitting the news, and we were trying to be very cognizant of this concern. What bit of her would we scan? Her whole body? It seemed like a lot of radiation for someone who looked so well. And adding on to that, the transfer to a bigger center, it was down a dangerous stretch of road that wasn't great for driving on at night. Animals were often on that road, and it was pretty sketchy driving at the best of times. So we decided against that for tonight. Her parents were relieved, of course, that we hadn't found anything of concern, and they seemed to like our suggested planning of sending them home for the night and having them come back during the day shift so we could call pediatrics at the referral center a few hours away to get any advice. And so off they went. I had now seen them each night for three nights in a row and was frankly kind of relieved that they would be seeing a different team during the day shift the following day. 
So when I showed up at the emergency room the next night, I was fully planning on looking up the patient's chart and finding what had happened when they come during the day. But then a big trauma case came in and we got all wrapped up and then I just never got the chance to follow up. The next evening, evening five, was my final evening shift in that stretch. And when I got to the emergency room, the place was fairly quiet. I saw a few patients and a few hours into my shift, I was doing some charting when I looked up as the triage nurse was wheeling a young female into an exam room. Right away, I knew that this was my patient from before. So I looked at the monitor, saw the name and clicked on the record to see today's triage information. She was again presenting with fever and another episode of incontinence and she was also considerably weaker today. The fever had apparently been there for most of the day and she wasn't eating or drinking much. I checked in with my staff again whether or not I should go in and he said I should as I had the best handle on the story, but that he would be close behind. So a little bit nervously I went in while the nurse was still settling the girl into a bed. The parents actually seemed relieved to see me as I imagine they were tired of telling the same story over and over again. And right away I asked what happened on their follow-up yesterday. And they then admitted rather sheepishly that they hadn't come to our center yesterday. They'd driven to another small rural hospital a few hours away where unfortunately there were also no scans or specialists because they wanted a second opinion. They kept apologizing for this decision and I kept trying to reassure them that it was okay, that they were, of course were just trying to do what was best for their daughter. Apparently the doctor at the other hospital had ordered similar tests to what we had done a few days prior because this hospital was not in the same system as ours so they couldn't see what we've already done. A repeat chest x-ray was done, which was normal, and blood tests were done. The white blood cell count was apparently 16 now, according to mum, but everything else had been within normal limits and they were sent home with follow-up instructions. But this time, the patient had remained febrile and was quite tired and listless all day. The parents figured it was partially from spending every evening either in a car or in an emergency room, but they felt that this she was okay and as long as she was drinking, they'd be able to keep her at home. But in the late afternoon, she was napping when her mom heard a noise coming from her room. She ran in and saw her daughter's arms and legs shaking. And then suddenly the shaking stopped. And from then on, her daughter was very drowsy. Now, it certainly sounded like a seizure that maybe her mom had caught the last few seconds of. And of note, the girl had been incontinent of urine again. And she seemed to remain basically totally asleep for about 30 minutes before she started to come around. They came straight to the hospital and were brought straight in. Now it gets easy, right? This has gone from, oh, it's probably nothing to, okay. Mm, this is the real deal. Full meal deal workup. Get going. Busy. Hello. When I examined her this time, she was febrile with a temp of 39, she was tachycardic at 124, and her rest rate was 32, but her blood pressure was totally normal. There were no findings on physical exam, except she was drowsy and had difficulty following commands. She seemed to have preserved sensation, but she could not cooperate with cerebellar or motor testing. She looked as if she was trying to complete the tasks, but she just couldn't make her limbs cooperate. I tried to have her sit up in order to get her up for gait testing, but very quickly I saw that this was not going to be possible. I scarpered out of that room and grabbed my staff. We called our referral center for a stat CT head, and while we were waiting for the transport team to be ready, my staff confirmed my exam findings. The transport team arrived and she was taken to the referral center in an ambulance and her distressed parents followed by car. There was a medical doctor on the transport team in case she deteriorated and needed an airway or perhaps an anti-epileptic. But thankfully, she remained stable for the transfer and she got her scan. And what did her scan show? It showed a seven by four centimeter brain abscess with associated mass effect. Of course it did. Of course it did. Yeah, and you've been sitting on this girl for days. But you know what? For every 
seven by whatever it was, seven centimeter mass effect brain abscess. There's 99 kids that have a virus. The team there was only just starting to investigate why on earth a healthy young girl of nine suddenly developed a brain abscess when we were actually chatting with them and we got a call from our lab to let us know that her blood cultures that we had done had rung positive for gram-positive organisms and they were felt to be staph. She went on to have surgical drainage of the abscess, but no source for those positive cultures was ever found. She had complete recovery and she was doing fine developmentally and physically when I last took a peek at her chart several months later. So it all turned out well in the end, but there were several things about this case that made me want to share it. So... Good discharge instructions are key, right? It can be very frustrating for parents to be told, just come back if it gets worse. But sometimes those are really important conversations that we have to have, and we have to remind parents that sometimes we need time to figure out what is going on. With the benefit of hindsight, of course it's easy to say, oh, we should have scanned her right away, or at least on the second visit. But are we really going to be scanning every kid with a few days of fever and no focal findings? Now, granted, I was certainly tempted to do so, Uh, for the next bunch of kids I saw with fever because I was a little bit burned by this case, but you have to resist that temptation. You have to remember that common things are common. So another issue that this case brought up was whether or not the same doctor should be reassessing a patient when they come back for ongoing symptoms. There are advantages and disadvantages to either approach, but of course a new doctor can think of something new that the previous doctors hadn't thought of. But at the same time, having the same doctor see the patient can be so helpful because you can really notice more subtle changes from baseline. I think what this really brought up for me and what this case highlighted for me was the value of discussing a case. Sure, if you're a resident, you discuss it with your staff. But if you're the staff, how do you feel about running cases by a colleague? This is actually one of the things I love most about the place where I now work. We have an open attitude to chatting about cases and bouncing ideas off each other. That collective hive mind can be so helpful, and there's no shame in asking for help. When this case was unfolding, I have to admit that it also made me feel a little bit defensive in some ways. Not because the parents were saying they didn't trust me or our hospital, but just because I was increasingly aware that we didn't have an answer. So I felt bad that we didn't have an answer, and I felt embarrassed. And this probably made me react differently than I would have if that patient hadn't been there on every single one of my evening shifts in a five-day period. The case also highlighted the perils of when hospital systems in neighboring areas do not share medical information. The family chose to seek a second opinion at a different hospital, and that hospital didn't have access to any of the tests that we had already done. I'm not faulting the family for this or for the doctors at the other hospital, because of course we would have done the same, but this delayed care led to repeat testings and increased costs. Again, this is all easy to talk about once it's over and we're looking back through the retrospectoscope. And the other lesson I learned is that sometimes things just take time to figure out. I'm not sure anyone would have initially deduced or guessed that a healthy nine-year-old girl with intermittent fevers for three days would have a brain abscess. Or perhaps I'm trying to protect my pride, which of course, as we all know, is a very dangerous thing to do in medicine. Of course, I would have worked it out. No, actually, this is a really, really good case because it does bring up the fact that you are going to miss things in medicine. That is just the way it is. And you're going to have a very difficult time living with that if you didn't do a thorough job and gave the patient really good instructions about when and why and how to return. That's the key thing. You cannot work up everybody for everything, although you see people try and do that, particularly at the beginning of their careers, out of this fear of a case like this, the one in a thousand that you're going to miss that's a brain abscess in an otherwise normal kid. You just, you can't practice like that. You're just going to hurt so many more people then you help. So the key thing is exactly as occurred here. 
What is the differential diagnosis? There really doesn't appear to be anything going on here. I did a thorough exam. I did a thorough history. And then I told the family, return if things change. They don't get better. Return here, see me, or give them very time, symptom, and place-specific return precautions. There is absolutely no reason to feel bad about missing a disease early in the progress, which really is not diagnosable early in the progress. But if you missed it because you were rushed and you didn't do a thorough job, you're going to have a hard time living with yourself. So do a good job. Be thorough. Give good return instructions. And every now and then, something like this is going to happen. You're going to be like, hmm, nobody could have picked that up. Nobody. In the ED, we deal with complications of all different kinds of hardware. And among those are nephrostomy tubes. We don't get a ton of training on these, and I find that I'm often unprepared to deal with the devices, even when they have a, a simple complication, which means that I'm often calling the urologist to ask him what to do. Even though some of these things seem pretty straightforward, it seems like something that I should be able to handle without bothering my urologist. And we know a lot of us work in places without urology coverage. So we want to get into this topic of managing nephrostomy tube complications. We've got Britt Long on to give us a crash course in managing them. So Britt, welcome back. Britt Long. Great to be back, Swami. And I'm really excited to be talking about nephrostomy tubes and some potential complications. You might see these patients on a fairly routine basis, or you may be at a center where this is not done routinely. Either way, you need to know what to do if a patient comes in with a complication. Definitely the first time that someone who's not a urologist has ever said, I'm excited to talk about nephrostomy <laughs> tubes, but that's okay. That's exactly the kind of excitement we want from our guests. Britt, let's get into it, starting with some of the basics. Nephrostomy tubes. Where do these tubes go? Who puts them in? And why are they placed in the first place? A nephrostomy tube is very simple. It's a small catheter that connects the upper urinary tract, usually the renal pelvis or the calyx, to an external collection bag. That tube is then anchored at the site where it exits the skin. They're almost always placed by interventional radiology or urology. It's most commonly going to be placed for a urinary obstruction like a stone or some form of malignancy. There are a couple other indications like urinary diversion, the patient may be undergoing some further endourologic procedures, or it could be used as a part of chemotherapy for upper urothelial carcinomas. For the most part, these tubes are placed successfully about 99% of the time, but we might see an acute complication after that tube's placed in about 6% of patients, so a complication is not uncommon. Complications of the tubes. Some of these complications are very simple. They're very straightforward. Let's start with those minor complications. There are a couple of these complications that we can easily handle in the ED. One. The first one is going to be some local redness and pain around that site. This is usually due to some local irritation from an adhesive dressing. It might be due to sensitivity from concentrated urine or even a localized infection. Now, if that patient appears well, they have no clear signs of sepsis, they can use topical antibiotics, some skin protectants, and then they also need to frequently change the overlying dressing. Two. Another skin change is scabbing around the site. This might bother the patient, but there isn't anything you need to do except reassure them. This is just normal healing. Three. The third minor complication is urine leakage. This is often due to some issues with that collection bag or the anchoring site as that catheter exits the skin. 
You need to look closely at the tube, the collection bag, and if you find an issue with the collection bag, just replace it. Four. The final one is going to be decreasing urine output. I say this is minor, but it can be a major complication based on the specific cause. This might be a mechanical complication like catheter kinking, it could be inappropriate capping, it might be an obstruction, or that patient may not be drinking enough. They're supposed to be drinking over two liters of water per day. So again, you need to perform a full check of the entire tubing system from the skin all the way to the collection bag, and then ask about their water intake. Those are going to be the more common minor complications that we're going to see. That decreased urine output, like you said, can become more complicated, but at least we can work to take out some of the really simple things. So was the catheter kinked or maybe the the cap wasn't placed correctly? Some of those things we can handle. And then if we still can't get that urine output to where we want it, then we can call our urology colleagues and say, hey, I've done X, Y, and Z already. I've checked that stuff. That's why I need you to come in and do the rest of that evaluation. So I think that can be a lot of help in just doing some of those basics. Major complications. But there are also some major complications aside from just that decreased urine output that we need to be aware of. You sent me a couple of these. I want to start with obstruction. Obstruction. So obstruction of the tube, that's a major complication. Yeah, obstruction is going to be one of the more common complications that we see. But unfortunately, there aren't great data on the incidence of obstruction. There's one study of post-operative patients that found obstruction requiring just some gentle flushing occurred in about 45% of cases. But again, we don't have clear numbers here. There are many reasons why this can occur. It could be due to a change in urine concentration with too much calcium, too much uric acid, but really any physiologic change in drainage can cause this. More severe problems that we need to think about are infection, like an abscess, a hematoma, or a dislodged tube. Most of these cases are going to be from some minor internal obstruction within the tube, and this can be easily fixed with some gentle irrigation at the bedside with saline or sterile water. I'm going to quickly walk through this because this is something we can easily take care of. You'll want to speak with the specialist who placed the tube up front to let them know the patient's in the ED and what your plan is going to be. You'll start by looking at the whole tube and the collecting system from the skin all the way back to the collection bag. If you don't see an obstruction, then you can attempt gentle flushing and aspirating. You do need to do this using sterile technique. So once you have your sterile gloves on, first step, disconnect the nephrostomy tube from its collection bag. Then just take some alcohol or chlorhexidine and clean the tip of the tube. Your next step is to gently flush a tube with about 10 cc's of normal saline or sterile water. You don't want to aggressively flush a tube. That can cause some significant trauma here. If you do meet some resistance, very gently pull back on the syringe. All you're trying to do is dislodge that source of obstruction then try to gently flush the nephrostomy tube again. Now, if this works, connect a collection bag, reinforce good nephrostomy tube care, and you can discharge the patient. If this doesn't work, we need to think about those three dangerous problems I mentioned, the catheter dislodgement, hematoma, or the abscess. You also need to do more if the patient is immunocompromised, they're anuric, or if they have acute kidney injury. At this point, we need to speak with the placing specialist. We need to obtain some lab tests like a CBC, check their renal function, their electrolytes, And then also imaging, it could be an ultrasound or a CT. Most of these patients are going to need tube exchange, and they're probably going to need admission, but that's going to depend on the cause of the obstruction. Let's get a little bit more into one of those other complications. So we've got that patient. We think there's an obstruction. We try to flush. If it flushes, fantastic. If it doesn't flush, now we're worried about catheter dislodgement, internal kinking, and then we have some infectious complications we're going to get to in a minute. But let's start with the dislodgement and kinking issues. The incidence of a dislodged or kinked tube is around 5%. There is a higher risk in patients who have a BMI over 35. 
This is due to a couple factors. First, there's greater skin laxity, and there's more subcutaneous tissue that can allow for movement of that tube from that anchor point. This can be a very easy, straightforward diagnosis. The patient may just come in and hand you the tube that was pulled out. If you see a visible kink, that potentially can also be corrected easily in the ED. But if you have that patient who's able to move around, change positions, visible kinking is probably very rare. If the tube has become dislodged or kinked and the patient doesn't know, it can be difficult to differentiate this from that internal obstruction of the nephrostomy tube that we talked about earlier. These patients may present with systemic symptoms, fevers, flank pain, back pain. They're going to have decreased urinary output, and they may have leakage of urine or bleeding around the tube site. This is where if the tube is still in the skin and you've been trying to obtain urine or you're meeting a lot of resistance with flushing, you need to stop. This could be a dislodged tube. Your next step is imaging with a CT abdomen and pelvis with IV contrast to look where that catheter is, and you also need to speak with your placing specialist. Once you have that diagnosis, the patient needs tube exchange. Depending on where you work, you potentially could send that patient to IR. They can place a new tube, and if that patient is well, they're stable, they have normal renal function, electrolytes, you could potentially send them home with follow-up. Infection. As with any prosthetic device, infection's a major concern, and you've alluded to this. We've had the local skin kind of infection that we can probably deal with, but then there's either deeper infection or infection in the urine that we also need to be thinking about. How do we recognize those problems and what are the keys in our management? Infection can be severe in these patients. Post-tube infection rates reach about 14%. It's most commonly going to occur in those first six to seven weeks after that tube has been placed. Up to half of these infections are going to be polymicrobial. Think about those common urinary drugs like E. coli, enterococcus, and then you have a device so you need to think about pseudomonas. The major risk factor for infection, the one with the strongest evidence for developing a post-tube infection, is going to be preoperative pyonephrosis. All this means is that there is purulent material in the upper urinary tract. The reason why this is so dangerous is that up to 60% of patients with pyonephrosis are going to develop post-procedural septicemia and then progress to septic shock. These patients are probably going to come in with systemic symptoms, chills, fevers. They often have flank pain, back pain and they often have nausea and vomiting. If you're concerned about infection, we need to check labs. We're looking for systemic inflammation. We need to look at their renal function, their electrolytes, and then we also need to obtain a urine sample. When it comes to getting that urine, you don't want to collect it from the present bag. You need a fresh sample. So you'll need to use sterile technique, but detach that current bag and place a sterile specimen cup at the tip of the nephrostomy tube. You don't need to aspirate. Gravity's going to do all the work and get you your sample. Once you have that sample, then attach the tube to a new collecting bag. Make sure to anchor the tube just to prevent dislodgement. For that patient who's toxic, they're sick, you'll also need to obtain blood cultures. If you're thinking obstruction or you're concerned about an abscess, then get a CT with IV contrast because that can change management. Treatment is going to include antibiotics and tube exchange. Unfortunately, we don't really have clear guidelines or even consensus on the antibiotic regimen and even the timeline for tube exchange. Antibiotics need to cover those typical bugs for sick pyelonephritis. A later generation cephalosporin like cefepime is a good option. If they're toxic, you need to give them broad spectrum coverage. You should also speak with a placing specialist for tube exchange. It's probably needed sooner rather than later because of source control. And most of these patients are going to need admission for that source control and then also for the IV antibiotics. Now, if the patient doesn't have symptoms and for some reason you checked a urine, about 7 to 8% of these patients are going to have asymptomatic bacteria. In most of these cases, we don't need to give these patients prophylactic antibiotics. 
one of the key things in there is who to get that CT scan on. I think this is always tricky trying to boil it down to if X gets CT scan, but in general, if the patient is sick, if they're unwell, they've got a nephrostomy tube in, you probably want some kind of imaging to make sure they don't have a collection, either an abscess or some other collection there that needs to be drained, needs a surgical intervention. I think that's probably the safest way to go to make sure you don't miss these. And whether that is an ultrasound or it's a CT scan, I think some kind of imaging can be really helpful in that group of patients if they look sick. Bleeding. After infection and obstruction, one of the other really common things we see is bleeding. The patient comes in and says, yesterday my urine in the collection bag was clear or was a little yellow, and now it's blood tinged. What do we do with that group of patients? This is a very common reason patients come in, especially if they weren't told about this. Gross hematuria is expected postoperatively. It's completely normal. This should resolve over 48 hours, but serious bleeding can occur in up to about 4% of patients. The biggest risk factor for major bleeding after that tube has been placed is preoperative renal failure. The presentation is going to come in two forms. There's an early form and then a late form. The earlier form is continued bleeding beyond that two to three days after the procedure. The later presentation is going to be some recurrence of gross hematuria or passage of clots after the patient has had a period of clear urine. This might be weeks to months after that tube has been placed. That's most commonly due to a missed intraoperative vascular injury that might form an AV fistula, it could form a hematoma, or a pseudoaneurysm. If a hematoma is present, that can cause some other major issues like obstruction or acute kidney injury. Now, depending on the amount of blood loss, patients may also present with signs and symptoms of anemia like shortness of breath, chest pain, they may even have syncope or presyncope. If that patient has significant bleeding, we need to check their hemoglobin, look again at the renal function, their electrolytes, and make sure to send a type and screen. You can start with a bedside ultrasound to look for hematoma and obstruction, but CT with angiography is going to be the ideal imaging test. Management depends on their hemodynamic status. You need to speak with a placing specialist for definitive therapy, but if they're severely anemic, they're unstable, you need to emergently give them blood products. If they're otherwise stable, then you can transfuse based on their comorbidities and the severity of symptoms from their anemia. Some patients might be managed non-operatively with just transfusions and good supportive care. If that patient has severe worsening hematuria, they have acute anemia, they have a hematoma, then they're often treated by IR with embolization. A couple of days after the procedure, some bleeding is normal, but once that bleeding has cleared, if you have recurrence of bleeding, especially if it's pretty frank blood, you need to be pretty concerned. A CT angio is going to be really helpful here to see if there's some underlying injury that came with the procedure, or if something else happened, there's a hematoma, you're going to get other complications related to that. So again, imaging is going to be really important for us to figure out exactly what's going on. And then of course, we know how to treat the patient if they're anemic, if their heart rate's elevated, if they're hypotensive, we can take care of that part of it. Some more stuff to know about the tubes. Aside from the things we've discussed, the obstruction, the bleeding, the infections, are there other things that we need to know about these nephrostomy tubes? I'm going to finish with two final considerations. The first is going to be pleural injury. This could be a pneumothorax, a hydrothorax, or even a pleural fusion. These are rare around 0.3%, but that risk of pleural injury comes down to the approach for renal access. The intercostal approach between the 11th and 12th ribs has a higher risk compared to the subcostal approach that that specialist might use. Patients are going to present with decreased breath sounds, maybe hypoxia, or even pleuritic chest pain. There's really no difference in evaluation and management compared with other causes of these conditions. You just need to keep this on your radar. 
The final consideration is what to do with that pediatric patient with a nephrostomy tube. The indications for placement are going to be the same as in adults with a very high success rate. The complications are also very similar. Most commonly, it's going to be mechanical complications, leakage, or infection. Less commonly, we'll see bleeding that requires transfusion, sepsis, and then pleural injury. The evaluation and management, again, similar to adults. Britt, this is great because I think now we have a good comprehensive approach to what complications we're going to see with these nephrostomy tubes, what we can handle ourselves, and then what workup we need to do to facilitate management for either our interventionalist or our urologist as they are coming in to take care of these patients or we're transferring the patient to get them those services. And I think understanding what tests we need to get, what workup we can do, and then what interventions we can do on our own is really critical to managing these patients well. Thanks so much for going through all this with us. Thanks for having me, Swami. Nephrostomy tubes. So I'm here with my good friend, Dr. Kenny Bond, who is an assistant dean at UCSF Fresno and a professor of clinical emergency medicine. And if you know anything about Kenny, you know that this man is known for stories. And now we have another case. So Kenny, thank you so much for joining me today. Always great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm working in the emergency department up in the high acuity zone. It's a busy day. Our days are often busy. We're a safety net hospital. We have a lot of patients that we can't place in the rooms that we'd like them to in the high security. So what ends up happening is high acuity patients get placed into lower acuity areas while workups are started. You know, the patient that presents, I don't see him initially. I hear about it after the fact, but what happens is this is a patient that has pancreatic cancer and has a workup ordered, but because of all his comorbidities, he's supposed to go to the infusion center to get his uh, chemotherapy. He didn't feel well, so he called the infusion center, said he wasn't coming, told his wife to take him to the ER. He gets seen up front by a different doctor, gets kind of the typical basic orders, telemetry stuff ordered for somebody who is, has a lot of comorbidities like this, and gets placed into a kind of a waiting area to get up to the higher acuity. So he's waiting for his initial workup to get started, and then how do you get involved in his care? Yeah, I get involved because I get a call overhead of stat doctor to this area. One resident has run in front of me and they're trying to assess him and they realize basically he's pulseless at this point. They initiate CPR, we're in a recliner, it's really awkward and we're just, our protocol is, you know, we got to get him out of there. So don't continue resuscitation in this observation ward, pull up a gurney, get him up and move him up as quickly as possible. So what happens with this resuscitation? What's going on with him medically? He's got EKG leads on, and he appears to be in probable VTAC, just looking at the leads on the monitor. Okay, so you have VTAC arrest. You have him now in a gurney, in a resuscitation room. How does this code go? What happens? We place an IO. We shock him right away. We shock him from VTAC into VFib. We do some more CPR. We shock him again out of VFib, and then he goes into sinus. So he goes through various periods of basically VTAC to VFib to sinus to VFib, and then essentially we put two antiarrhythmics on. Eventually we shock him again and he goes into sinus and stays in sinus. So, so far this sounds like a fairly typical situation, but it is not your typical patient. What is different about the outcome of this code? Yeah, so up until now, this seems like your very typical VTAC VFib arrest with the ROSC. That's basically that many of us have seen many times, right? The big difference that comes up is that once we shock him out of the final time, every time actually that he gets pulses, 
he starts moving around. So when we get his pulses back sustainably, what happens is he's just flailing around and like moaning and talking. So we're setting up to intubate, but he's like basically phonating, not confused, but sort of like making a lot of noises. And then one of the nurses goes, looks him up because he's already registered. It's like, I think he's DNR DNI. And then we look it up and confirm that. And we're like, okay, well, we're definitely not intubating him. And then in the next five minutes, basically he starts waking up. He actually tells a joke within 60 seconds of waking up. He's like, wow, it's like, this is what I need to get a room in the ER. Like I needed oh, to die. No. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my God. He has such a good nature about this. We do the EKGs to see if he's got a STEMI, something that can be intervened. He has, you know, the typical like repolarization abnormalities post code that happens. But at the same time, he's not really a candidate. He doesn't want intervention. We ask him about all these things. He doesn't want any of these things. And he's like mostly just complaining about his chest and his leg hurting. But, you know, he's just shocked. And, and I put an IO in that leg because we didn't have IV access at the time. Now, I have not yet experienced a patient who is intermittently having some level of consciousness with, you know, CPR or during a code. I haven't seen that yet. I've heard many stories about that. I have never seen a patient who has gotten ROSC then be alert enough to talk to me. I've never seen that before. I think that's very unusual. And then on top of that, Kenny, you do something in this moment that I think is brilliant and also brave. You take out a microphone, consent him for an interview, and you actually talk to him about this experience. We have that audio. Let's take a listen to what the patient said just a short while after he was coding, and now he's fully awake, alert, and fully consenting to discuss this and share that story. Jesse, can you say hi? Hello. How are you feeling right now, Jesse? Under the pressure. Where's the pressure? Of my heart. Of your heart? Yes. Do you remember what happened today? I got up and I was going to go to an appointment. I told my wife, that's not going to happen. I'm, I'm not out to it. I'm not going to make it over there. So she said, well, I'm going to take you to the hospital. And I said, oh, let's go to the hospital. Do you remember coming to the hospital? Yes. My son-in-law brought me. Do you remember when the doctor saw you up front in the hospital? Yes, I do. And then we brought you back to the room. Do you remember that? Yes. Okay. Something happened there. I don't know what. So you don't remember exactly what happened. No. What do you remember at that point? They put the water, IV water on me. And uh, I was resting there. That's as far as I remember. Next, I was in an in a ER room. So next thing, you, you woke up, you're in an emergency department. What do you remember? Uh, what were you doing to you? I was having a lot of chest pain and uh, not very conscious. A lot of people around me. Mm-hmm. That's about all I remember. Do you remember during that time when you were out? Did you, you know, did you think you were going to die? Do you see God? Anything? Uh, what did you no, feel was going on? I did. I was uh, perplexed. And uh, I was coming around, but uh, not, not completely there. Not completely there, yeah. Now, my understanding is you don't want any of those things to happen. Is that correct? I don't. It's I, I can justify failure for 14 years, and uh, it's tired. And you have pancreatic cancer as well, and right? And the cancer. There's, there's not much I, I don't, even you guys think that you can do about that. So just, just got to let me go. 
So if that happens again, you don't want us to do all those things that we did to bring you back, right? Not really. Not really. You just want to go peacefully? I mean, I would love to live forever in a human life, but I ain't going to happen. How's your life now? How's your quality of life right now? I can't do anything anymore. Mm -hmm. I can't go out anymore. Well, I have to say, it's pretty rare in all my years to take care of people like yourself and, you know, to wake right back up and start talking to us is not that common. I've seen only a couple times in my oh, career. So, Praise the Lord. Yeah, so someone, someone's still looking out for you, apparently. Mm. Even though you didn't, looking back on it, you, you didn't even want those things to happen. You didn't want us to bring you back. Are you mad at well, us for bringing I, you back? No, I wanted my wife to talk to me a little more. A little more. You weren't quite ready, huh? Yeah. But if it happens again in this stay, no, let's just go. Just let it go. Okay. Is there anything we can do? What else we can do for you? I never been dead before, so I don't know. Well, you've got one up on most of us. Well, I, I one time already, but yeah. Well, let's, you know, we'll try to make the next time a little more comfortable for you. Thank How about you. that? Yeah, thank you. I'll let your wife back in. Thank you, Jesse, for your time. So this case actually took place a few years ago. So you've had plenty of time to reflect on it. Has it changed at all how you think about codes or end of life care or palliative medicine? Here you have this guy and I would feel the same too. sort of a sense of guilt in a way like we went against his wishes and we did this to him. The outcome, fortunately, was, I guess, good in that he woke up, he was talking and he wasn't angry that you went against his wishes and he had peace with the situation. But using words like good introduces all this bias. I mean, that's my word. That's not how he would probably describe the situation. So I'm wondering, reflecting on this, has it changed the way that you think about end-of-life care in the emergency department? I do think so. I'd argue whether the outcome was really good. It certainly is a good story. I'm not sure if the outcome was really ideal, right? Because so ideal is we should have had a system in place where we already had a document. He was DNR, DNI, but, you know, and he was being roomed and you know, this happened really quick, but we did have some systems that we maybe we shouldn't have ever done this, right? And I think about this all the time, and I'm not really here to be political on the show, but like, what's the right thing we're doing for people? Because are we, you know, when are we really uh, saving lives and prolonging life? And when are we extending death and letting people die with honor and dignity is, is just as important as intervening and saving someone's life who needs it. I wish I could jump in here with some closure on the case that made us all feel better. I wish I could tell you about how it really did end for Jesse. This case was a few years ago, and all I could tell you is that if you were to look in Jesse's chart, you'd see that he was discharged from the hospital and there were no visits after that. So hopefully he was able to have a dignified death, maybe even at home, surrounded by loved ones. And what we can learn from this, I think, is to be good communicators. Make sure we document clearly in the chart what a patient's wishes are. Put in an order for a code status. Try to make it known to other people who might be taking care of that patient because we always want to be respectful to our patient's end-of-life wishes. Well, thanks again, Kenny, for doing this interview. Before we wrap up, I wanted to send this piece over to Vanessa Cardi, someone who works in primary care and in the emergency department and does a lot of palliative care. Just wanted to hear what her thoughts were about this. Thanks, Jess. This was such a compelling story on so many levels, and I really appreciate the chance to weigh in. First of all, being able to have such a clear and coherent conversation with someone who was literally dead a few minutes before is certainly eye-opening. He describes the pressure in his chest, the pain in his legs. Those are things that we, as the medical team, cause in our patients who we are coding. 
Of course, our goal is to resuscitate them, but that process of resuscitation has effects, and this was a really stark and excellent reminder of that fact. Another aspect that I felt was really important here was how Jess and Kenny discussed what it felt like for the team to realize that they had coded someone who was DNR-DNI. They discussed the feelings of guilt and those questions of, did we do the right thing? Luckily, the patient here seemed quite at peace with it all and bore no resentment to the team, which I'm sure made it easier. But I have seen other cases where this happened and where the patient wakes up mad, spitting mad. The key difference here, though, is that the team stopped with aggressive interventions once they realized the patient was DNR-DNI. As soon as his wishes were known, they followed those wishes. And that is really the best we can hope for when it comes to DNR or DNI requests in an emergency. We can't have the standard practice be that we locate the code status form for each patient before we start intervening. If we did that, we would never get anyone back. But we should have someone actively checking in wallets, in the electronic health records, or by calling family members while a resuscitation is going on so that we can stop immediately if we find out that it wasn't their wish. For patients who are in palliative care, I will sometimes suggest a medic alert bracelet that states DNR on it so that no interventions get started in the field or in an ambulance if that would go against the patient's wishes. Such an interesting case, and so valuable to hear about. This has happened to many of us, I am sure, but remember that if you are trying to do your best for the patient, and if you respect their wishes as soon as you are made aware of them, then you are doing everything that you can do. Thank you so much for sharing, Jess and Kenny. Hey, this is Dan McCollum, and I'm here to give you an update on sexually transmitted diseases, everyone's favorite topic. So, want to kick off by asking a little question, a little audience participation here. The most common sexually transmitted disease in the United States. Go ahead. What is rickets? No. Ugh, these are so hard. So, a lot of you may have missed this, but it's actually HPV. That's right, human papillomavirus. It's the most common viral sexually transmitted infection in the United States. I won't dwell on this very much. I just want to point out that it's out there a lot. And if you have kids, you should seriously consider getting them vaccinated against it. That is the main take-home point here because once you actually have either precancerous growths or genital warts, there's not a whole lot we can do about it in the emergency department. So, second question. The most prevalent non-viral sexually transmitted infection in the United States. What is a broken heart? <laughs> Why am I getting these wrong? So the answer here is not chlamydia, not gonorrhea, but actually trichomonas. Oh, I knew it was a trichomonas question. That's right. Trichomonas affects over 13 million Americans. It's really, really common and systematically underdiagnosed. We often get very focused on those bacterial causes and forget about their cousin, trichomonas. So I want you to actually think about how to make this diagnosis. Many of you are going to go old school and actually do a wet prep. Now, I'm going to tell you why that's a bad idea. Unfortunately, wet preps miss roughly half of the cases of trichomonas. Even when done properly, they're only about 50 to 65% sensitive, meaning that you're missing about one half to one third of these cases if you rely on the wet prep. Also, wet preps are really annoying to do. Where is your microscope in your department? How long does it take for you to get the stuff for it? How gross is that thing in there? They're just not as useful as, as some of the more accurate tests. There's also a little bit of an art to how to prepare these. If you are going to use a wet prep, make sure that you do it very promptly because trichomonas will stop swimming if you delay too long between obtaining the slide and getting it. 
and you also need to make sure that it is properly moist. But I think a much, much smarter thing to do would actually be to do a nucleic acid amplification test. So go a little PCR action on this. These are over 95% sensitive, making them much, much more accurate than that old school wet prep. This could be done from a variety of sources. You can use genital swabs or urine. Some of you may be at shops that are actually routinely testing urine for this and might be seeing a huge uptick in the number of places that are actually uh, diagnosing trick. There are some rapid tests as well that are antigen detection. The good thing about these is they're super fast and they only take about 10 minutes. However, the sensitivity is not quite as good. It's between 80 and 95%, placing them between the old school wet prep and the new school nucleic acid amplification tests. I very rarely do wet preps anymore in my patients. I will use it sometimes for bacterial vaginosis if it's high on my list or if I'm uncertain about vaginal candidiasis. But both of those can often be diagnosed based on the appearance of the pelvic exam somewhat. The NAAT is just way more accurate, and that's why I use it. COVID, unfortunately, has complicated the use of these tests. Depending on your local hospital's need, some of the regents are used for trichomonas, and so they may shut down intermittently depending on what surge status you are about whether you're able to get access to this. But if you're able to, go for it. How do you treat? Go for two grams of metronidazole or flagyl for those of you that sold out. If positive, you should lower your threshold to treat if you're highly suspicious and you can't properly test. Next up, so if HPV is the most common viral STI and trichomonas is the most common non-viral STI, what is the most common bacterial STI? What is, I thought bacteria reproduced asexually? No. Oh, you mean, oh, it transmits the disease. You got it. Uh. That's right. It's our old friend, chlamydia. So one thing that I want to update you on is that the way to treat chlamydia has had a little tweak recently. The 2020 CDC update showed that we should be changing the agent that we reach for. So instead of using azithromycin as we used to with a single dose of one gram, they actually recommend that we go with doxycycline, 100 milligrams, twice a day for a week. Now, why did they uh, boot down azithromycin? Well, there's been more and more resistance to the azithro. Now, this really stings because it means that you have to rely on your patient to actually get that doxy script filled. And this is going to result in fewer people actually being treated than when we're actually directly dosing them in the ED. So what do I do? Well, I actually ask my patient, just be very blunt, like, hey, I've got this script. It's going to cost you roughly 25 bucks or so to get filled, depending on the pharmacy you go to. Are you actually going to get this treated? Or do I need to give you the second line treatment here, knowing that it won't be quite as effective? If a patient says, I'm absolutely not getting that script filled, I'm going to go ahead and use azithromycin, knowing that it's not first line treatment, but something is definitely better than nothing. But for those that would actually go and get that script filled, I think doxy is the better agent. Fewer people have been using doxy to treat stupid things like viral URIs, and so we have a lot less resistance, hence the recommendation. Next question. So, if we said that chlamydia was the most common bacterial sexually transmitted infection in the United States, what is the silver medalist? What is the second most common bacterial STI? Uh, what is, I don't know, gonorrhea? No. Isn't that an STI? Mm. Bet a lot of you missed this one. It's not gonorrhea. It's actually mycoplasma genitalium. Mycoplasma geni- what? what? Mycoplasma genitalium has been rising in our focus because of how common it is becoming. It was only first identified in the 1980s, and it's been recognized as a really common cause of male urethritis, representing about a quarter of non-chlamydial urethritis. 
It also represents about 30% of persistent or recurrent urethritis. It's actually more common in most areas than Neisseria gonorrhea, but remains less common than chlamydia. So one of the reasons that we didn't actually know much about this was there was, until recently, no FDA-approved test for it. So we knew that this disease was out there, but it was really hard to make the diagnosis, and a lot of these folks said, hey, I'm not sure why you're having these symptoms, and they just empirically got treated for chlamydia and gonorrhea. Unfortunately, that does not actually consistently treat this. How do you treat it? Well, it's tricky. Azithromycin is recommended in some guidelines, but about half the infections are resistant, so it's not going to work very well. Moxifloxacin is also successful, but the data is still very early. Minocycline is another option, but it's probably not a drug that you're very familiar with. So what would I recommend? Well, by itself, doxycycline does not perform the best in the world. So I would actually recommend that you start with moxifloxacin. If you have access to the NAAT test, I would recommend that you be testing a lot more folks for mycoplasma genitalium. If there's a big delay, such as it being a send-out lab, which unfortunately it is at my home institution, I would recommend that you reserve treatment for this till only if they're refractory, okay? So if you have that patient that keeps bouncing back and they promise that both they and their partner were treated with prior reasonable antibiotics, and yet they're still continuing to have urethritis symptoms, I would actually go ahead and do moxifloxacin as a reasonable choice. If they're refractory to that, I really think that you need to be kicking them over to infectious disease because it's going to be much, much harder to make sure that they get the proper treatment. Another update that I want to give you is uh, the update in how we take care of gonorrhea. So gonorrhea has rapidly been competing with tuberculosis for what is going to become the most drug-resistant bacteria on the planet. TB and gonorrhea are neck and neck, and my money's on gonorrhea because I know people. So I think gonorrhea is going to continue to have problems with antibiotic resistance. They've actually increased the recommended dose of ceftriaxone to go from 250 milligrams of IM ceftriaxone to 500 milligrams. They doubled that dose. Now, 500 milligrams is a lot. We're getting larger and larger doses in this IM, and IM shots hurt. So what if you have a patient that already has an IV for some other reason, maybe got placed in triage or something like that, and you're wondering, hey, can I just use this IV instead of actually having them do this painful IM shot? And the answer is absolutely. You get the same plasma concentration for the first 48 hours, whether given IV or IM. There is a slight uptick in the urinary concentrations with IV administration, but I would say IM is the way to go. If I was the patient, I'd much rather have that given via IV than actually doing the IM shot. There's certainly no need to start an IV in these patients. I'd rather not have to, you know, have them stuck with an IV and then do the IM shot. Just one stick should be good enough, and the IM dose is fine if they don't have an IV, but feel free to use that IV if you already have it. So the next thing I want to discuss is the problems with empirically treating all of your patients for STDs. A lot of places don't even bother getting the PCRs to check for things like chlamydia and gonorrhea. And that's a big reason why we're seeing such resistance. We're seeing a lot of people just throw antibiotics at anyone with any urinary symptoms saying, hey, it's plausible you're a young person with these symptoms. Let's just go ahead and treat you. The problem with that is it means that you're often treating for sexually transmitted diseases the patient doesn't have, even if it is an actual STI. And this has been one of the reasons that azithromycin, for example, we're seeing more and more resistance as well as the ceftriaxone having resistance with gonorrhea. So I would actually really recommend that you make sure that you're getting PCRs on these folks and that you actually only treat for the sexually transmitted infections they have. 
You do need to have a robust way of calling back patients for this. But unless it's a very clear patient that obviously has an STI, I don't like empirically treating nearly as much as my colleagues. So of those that we actually empirically treat, how many of them are actually getting proper treatment? The answer is about 15%. 85% of the times that we're empirically treating for gonorrhea or chlamydia, we're wrong, meaning five out of the six times we're actually treating with the wrong antibiotics. That can be overcoverage by treating for STDs that they don't have, or they don't even have an STD at all. They got something else. So I'd really, really recommend that you use those PCRs to actually make the right diagnosis. Next up, I'd like to talk about emerging sexually transmitted infections. So one that I want you to be aware of is Neisseria meningitidis. Yeah, that Neisseria bug is becoming more common as a sexually transmitted disease. It's found in the posterior oropharynx of about 1 in 10 people, which is troubling because it's going to become steadily more resistant to antibiotics. Another to be aware of is Shigella flexneri. It can cause very violent diarrhea, and it tends to happen associated with rectal sex or oral anal contact of some sort. There's also antibiotic resistance mounting for this as well. But the bug I really want to focus on is lymphogranuloma venereum. This is caused by certain strains of chlamydia trachomatis and causes that famous groove sign due to swelling of the inguinal and femoral lymph nodes. Now, this is pathognomonic for the disease, and pathognomonic, of course, is Latin for occurs in 15% of cases. The root patho means 15, and the root gnomic means Dan is making this up because he never took a Latin class. I knew it! But when present, the groove sign, it makes it very likely for it to be LGV, meaning it's very specific, but remember, 85% of cases don't have this groove sign. You might just see a little pimple or an ulcer, something like that. So, how can you make this disease? Well, you can do nucleic acid amplification tests, but it's going to be a send-off lab for most. So, really, it's going to be a combination of positive chlamydia with clinical symptoms. The treatment is going to be doxy for most patients, and they may need a longer treatment with this particular disease of up to three weeks. I would definitely recommend that if you suspect this, that you actually get infectious disease or primary care follow-up to make sure this gets better. The next thing I want to discuss with you is the fact that you should be treating the partner as well. So if you have someone come in with an STD and they're sexually active with someone, it's very likely that their partner has it. And if you only treat the patient in front of you and not their partner, if they continue to be sexually active, they're going to contract the disease again. So what can you do about this? You can do something called expedited partner therapy, meaning that you're giving antibiotics not just to the patient in front of you, but also to their partner. This is legal in all states except for South Carolina. Sorry, South Carolina, you need to catch up because the other 49 states know what's up. Check your local laws. I'm not a lawyer. And if you take legal advice from a podcaster that's a redneck like me, you've got deeper issues than legal issues of doing expedited partner therapy. Gonorrhea is, is very much a problem with this because cephalosporin resistance is occurring. And so it is really recommend that you actually do that IM dose of ceftriaxone. But if you just know that their partner is not going to come in, you can write for oral suffixum 800 milligrams. This is not ideal because that means that they're not going to get the the recommended first-line treatment, but it is better than nothing. So I'd like to close out this piece by actually encouraging you to have some compassion for these folks. There are a few complaints that actually get more eye rolls and just, you know, why, why do I have to deal with this? than someone coming in with suspected STD. They're often not that medically complicated. You know, it's very algorithmic about what you should be doing and how you treat them. And so it's not a real fun topic to talk about. And it's very easy to be very judgmental, you know, especially if you've seen the same patient multiple times 
or that you see that there is a recurrent visit coming into the emergency department because of complaints about STDs of some sort, I really want to discourage you from being very jaded about this because you don't know the patient's full story. Like anything else in medicine, there's other things that are going on in this person's life that you just don't know about. So, for example, sexually transmitted diseases are incredibly common with 20 million new infections every year just in the United States. So very common. Yet somehow, we treat these patients that test positive as unusual in some way when really it's very, very common. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I've never had an STD. Maybe, maybe not. Remember that only 30% of patients with a sexually transmitted infection are actually symptomatic, meaning 70% or over two-thirds of them have no symptoms. So if you're relying on the fact that you've never had a symptomatic sexually transmitted infection to tell yourself that you yourself never had an STD, well, maybe, but maybe not. So twice as many people are asymptomatic with STIs as people that are symptomatic. We also falsely assume that people with sexually transmitted infections somehow did something wrong. Well, this could be wrong on many, many levels. One, the patient could have actually been practicing safe sex, and they just got unlucky. Condoms aren't perfect, and so they might have been a monogamous relationship with an asymptomatic partner, and the condom just failed to prevent them. That's bad luck, more so than just a terrible person. What if they're engaged in risky sex due to a recent tragedy in their life? You know, the death of a loved one or something like that, and this is their coping mechanism. Well, could be. You just don't know. Or what if their partner's actually cheating on them, even though they're completely monogamous? They could have been married for 20 years, and their husband is cheating on them, and that's how they caught chlamydia. Well, you don't know that because it's very unlikely for the patient to volunteer this. And last but not least, what if this patient was a victim of sexual assault, and they're just too uncomfortable to report it? There's already such a stigma about sexual assault, and this is a really common way for people to actually contract STDs due to the high rate of occurrence of STDs after a sexual assault. So don't add to the difficulty and stigma of sexually transmitted diseases in the ED. The patient's going through enough. Now, I'm certain that thousands of people listening to this have actually tested positive for an STI. And from the statistics, that's really, really common. With so many people being asymptomatic, I wouldn't be confident that you don't. I'm going to close this piece, but I'm not going to tell you whether I myself ever tested positive for an STI. Ask yourself, would it make me any less of a person? Should you judge me or think less of my education because of whether I had an STD? Think on it. Why would you? What is, perhaps, depending on how... Summary. Fine, I get it. In summary. Gonorrhea's recommended dose of ceftriaxone is doubled to 500 milligrams, and co-infection with chlamydia should now be treated with a week of doxy instead of azithromycin. Number two, consider expedited partner therapy to prevent reinfection and community spread. It's legal almost everywhere. Number three, consider mycoplasma genitalium if they have refractory symptoms without a diagnosis of gonorrhea or chlamydia. You can treat with moxifloxacin if refractory to the initial dose of azithromycin. And last but not least, reduce the stigma behind these infections. Patients need your help, not your judgment. And with that, I thank you for your time. We have three players finishing with no money. Stop laughing. And that means, ladies and gentlemen... Your questions are too hard. Tomorrow, we will have no returning champion. We will introduce three new players to Jeopardy. I don't want to come back. So, sorry, folks. (laughs) See you tomorrow. Look at
it's time for the ultra, ultra summary. And let's do the first paper. Abstract one. First paper is the effect of fluid bolus administration on cardiovascular collapse during critically ill patients undergoing tracheal intubation, a randomized clinical trial in JAMA. And here is the basic idea. You know it. You probably do it. You've got a sick patient. You're about to tube him. And then they're going to have some positive pressure ventilation. And what you're doing is give them a fluid bolus because you know that the drugs and the paralytics and all that stuff is going to, you know, decrease their venous tone and they're going to crash. So a lot of people give 500 mil bolus. Well, unfortunately, in this study, there was no difference really between the fluid group and the non-fluid group. This is on the back of another study that says the same thing, which makes us now question whether this fairly routine practice and one that is supported by a number of societies actually is based in evidence. And in fact, I can tell you now, it is not. So fluid bolus, critically ill patient, doesn't seem to be working. However, and this is an important caveat, these people were not the subset that were already hypotensive. This was the subset of people who had a pretty good blood pressure to begin with. Abstract 2. Next paper they did was rapid exclusion of acute myocardial injury and infarction with a single high sensitivity cardiac troponin T in the emergency department A multicenter United States trial in circulation. We've been hearing about ultra sensitive troponins for a long time. You know, troponins have basically over time become more and more sensitive. So each generation is sort of more sensitive than the one before. So the question is, can a single troponin T below six nanograms per mil exclude an MI? And in this cohort, the answer was yes, with about 99% accuracy. And if you've got a negative EKG and a negative troponin, just one, then uh, you are good to go. But Mike points out importantly that if this is early on in their chest pain, magically they're walking past the emergency department and they got chest pain, you might want to hold them for a while. You might want to do a delta trope. And unfortunately, the majority of people will be in sort of an intermediate group where you're going to have to do a second one anyway. But there'll be a significant subset that have come in hours after their pain and the trope will be less than this magic six nanograms uh, per mil. And you're going to be able to say very confidently, chance that you're having an MI, very small. Abstract three. So crashing patient, what should you use as your induction agent? Ketamine or Atomidate? Ketamidate. That is correct. So here's a study which keeps the controversy alive. Atomidate versus ketamine for emergency endotracheal intubation, a randomized clinical trial. It was in intensive care medicine. And basically it's all over the place. Some factors favoring Atomidate, some factors favoring ketamine, sometimes favoring ketamine, other times, 28 days versus seven days, one drug looks a little bit better than the other drug. What I really think this says is that there's not a huge difference between the two. We have sort of come to believe that Atomidate is the devil and ketamine is an angel. But this trial does not show that. This trial shows that they're very similar. Even though the authors conclude ketamine, 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 the data is a little bit all over the place. Big study, 800 crashing patients. Looks like we're going to need a study of 5,000. But if that's true, then if there is a difference, it's going to be small. Abstract four. Do you remember the pandemic? Yeah, I think you remember the pandemic. And remember how you were proning patients who came in super hypoxic and they got better? Well, does proning really work? in the long term. So this was assessment of a wake proning position in hospitalized adult patients with COVID-19, a non-randomized controlled trial. This was in JAMA Internal Medicine. And this was a pretty big group of patients that weren't randomized in a traditional way, but were probably pretty random. Anyway, they found that uh, proning in the end, 28-day mortality, no difference. And actually early on, it looked like proning made things worse. So Mike sort of goes through the methodology, but basically comes out to say, look, proning probably works to reduce hypoxia, but we thought it would reduce mortality over time. But this study suggests that's not true, that the sick people are going to get sicker, and whether you prone them or not, the outcomes really are no different. Now, 
That doesn't mean that you shouldn't prone people, even though there was some suggestion early on that maybe it made things worse. But at best, I think it says if you're doing this because you think it's going to make people live longer, it might not be true. But if you're doing this to give yourself a little time so that you can do a more controlled intubation if that's required or something like that, that is not unreasonable. Abstract six. So you've got a neonate and you've got to do a resuscitation. And obviously, vascular access, big problem. And what about the IOs? Well, this was a nice little study. It's a comparison of intraosseous devices for resuscitation of term neonate, a randomized simulation study. So they had these little bones that simulated little baby bones, and they gave people a jam sheety or a modified jam sheety or an easy IO. And they found, unfortunately, that the easy IO went through both cortices and out the back more than half the time, whereas with the jam sheety-like devices, about 25% of the time. So this is a really good reminder. We all love the easy IO. But it is a reminder of a number of things, that these little tiny kids are little and tiny, and it is so easy to go through both sides, whether you're using a drill device, like an AZIO, or a non-drill device. So just keep that in mind. Be really careful, really slow when you're using an AZIO in a neonate. It is super easy to go through that little tiny bone. Abstract 7. Abstract 7 was a very important paper. It's a retrospective evaluation of Phenobarb versus Benzos for the treatment of alcohol withdrawal in a regional Canadian emergency department. It was basically sort of a, a little QA project that they turned into a paper. But it's important because there's a lot of controversy about whether you should be treating alcohol withdrawal with benzos or phenobarb. Now, when I was at UCLA, we used benzos all the time. When I was in Australia, it was all benzos. When I got to USC, they used a lot of phenobarb. And I talked to a lot of toxicologists and experts, and they're like, well, there's no evidence for that. Fast forward 20 years, there's still almost no evidence about which one to use or whether we should be using them in combination or whether we should be using them in combination with even a third agent like Haldol or something like that, Droperidol. But anyway, this little study said, if you can believe it, that the Phenobar patients would taste great less filling. They are less likely to be admitted and it was just better, right, than the benzos. We don't really know that. But it does suggest, another small study that does suggest that this is a reasonable option and as Micah said, there's enough evidence now that we should actually do a big trial to find out which one we should be using, what doses and all that stuff. I can tell you my experience. When I got to USC and I started using Phenobub, yeah, pretty good. And generally what most of us would do would start with benzos for the more minor withdrawal, but that person you know is going to have the big time withdrawal. And let me tell you, there's some patients at USC that have big time withdrawal. You do sort of benzos first, and then you bring in the phenobarb. And my word, sometimes you have to use an enormous amount of both of them to stop the seizing and to stop the badness. But little study, not conclusive, but keep an open mind because phenobarb might be coming for benzos in the alcohol withdrawal patient. Abstract 8. Abstract 8 is a good one. Is headache during pregnancy a higher risk for serious secondary headache causes the head study? And it was in emergency medicine, Australasia. So that is a big question, right? We know that there's a number of conditions which are more common in pregnancy. And the question that this article tried to ask was, what about headache? If somebody presents with headache in pregnancy, are they higher risk? And the answer is this study can't tell us because it's too small. But it's suggested, looking at the patients who did have a serious cause of headache and were pregnant, that they presented in classical fashion. The subarachnoids look like subarachnoids. The intracranial bleeds look like the intracranial bleeds. But the one thing to remember is that eclampsia and preeclampsia can just present with headache, non-specific headache. So obviously in a pregnant woman and they've got a headache, look for eclampsia and preeclampsia. But are these patients at higher risk of other badness? Don't know. 
too small a study. It needs to be a much bigger study to answer that question. But it makes us feel better, as the gentleman pointed out, that in this small study, the patients that presented with bad stuff presented with bad stuff that was obvious. Abstract 9. Abstract 9 is an important paper for what it doesn't say, but what the authors conclude. And this is prevalence of intracranial hemorrhage amongst patients presenting with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, a systematic review and meta-analysis in resuscitation May 2022. Now, they say in this meta-analysis that they collected all the data and that your chance of having an intracranial bleed if you present in cardiac arrest is 4%, 1 in 20. But that is absolutely not true. Because in these studies, not all the patients got a CT scan if they were in cardiac arrest. Only, in retrospect, going back, was it 4%. So why did those people get the scan that were in cardiac arrest when we know we don't do it for everybody? There must have been something about these patients that was different. So as Sanjay rightly concludes, what this paper shows is that in a subset of patients where they've got cardiac arrest and there's something about the patient that makes the doc, the treating clinician, get a head CT, the positivity rate is 1 in 20. So that's super different. We'll only know what that rate of intracranial bleeding is in cardiac arrest if we scan everybody. And that is not even the real question. The real question is, and if I do find an intracranial bleed in this cardiac arrest patient, can I change the outcome? That's the real study. Because just because I can find it, if they all die anyway, which is a, you know, the trends in a lot of the smaller studies, then why am I looking anyway? So this article is just more of a cautionary tale, as Sanjay said. Don't believe everything you read. Look, I've got no more time. I'm trying to limit these to 10 minutes. This was the ultra, ultra summary. summary I've summary. said it so many times. I'm sick of it. Sick of just it. nauseous about it. I'm so done. 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 And why? Just tell me why. Why would you not want to be that? A legend in the nature that pertains to the emergency medicine literature. Tastes great, less filling. Don't, don't, don't believe everything you read. You need to listen. Herbert Hound. All right, Jess, we're on the other side of the programming. Time to jump into the mailbag. And we are visiting Cross Timbers, Missouri to see the home office. You ready? Yeah, Cross Timbers, Missouri. Here we come. Cross Timbers, Missouri. All right. Well, we've got a couple of different pieces. And the first one, Jess, was a question we got from a listener about AMA and elopement and legal protection. Letter one. Thanks to Ruben, who sent in this question. He says, I was recently having a discussion about medical legal issues of AMA versus elopement, and which provides you with more protection from litigation. He asks, for your typical patient, and this is not an intoxicated patient or therefore psych or geriatric issues, which of these represents a greater risk? For example, a patient who elopes having, for example, vague abdominal pain, and I am unable to contact them until after they leave, and I followed some type of hospital protocol even to try to find them in the lobby or calling them three times and it's documented in the chart, especially with longer wait times and nurse shortages, this topic has been coming up more and more in our department and from my friends around the country. Thanks, and I look forward to hearing back from you. So joining me is Gita Pensa, friend of the program. We've talked many times before, Gita, here, and um, man, this is tough, don't you think? Uh, it is tough. And I don't know that there's a hard and fast rule. And it really comes down to what happens after they leave, what kind of grounds are there for litigation. And 
How strong is your chart? And then, you know, is there a plaintiff's attorney and an expert who is willing to say that this is something that uh, the physician should be held liable for? As far as elopement, I mean, it's really hard to blame the providers for those things that happen, except that we worry that the perception will be that the prolonged wait time is what led to this bad outcome that the patient wouldn't have left otherwise. To me, it feels like, you know, from a bird's eye perspective, with your average patient who actually came to the ED on their own, they certainly have the ability to leave on their own also, of course. But we want to differentiate that from patients who, at least on initial assessment, maybe before our mini metal status or whatever type of testing that we do, before we've established capacity of that patient, if you're bringing in a head injured patient by EMS, certainly until we have evaluated that patient, they should not be able to get up and walk out. Or obviously a patient who has suicidal ideation or homicidal ideation or a patient is altered for some other reason, and you're actually familiar with the case of a patient who eloped. However, the extenuating circumstance was SI. Right. So I am familiar with the case where a patient, they self-presented to triage, did express that they were having depression and maybe some suicidal ideations. The wait was long. There weren't enough resources. There was not a safety watch placed on that patient right away. And then the patient did walk out of the emergency department and then subsequently died by suicide. Now, Ruben is specifically asking about patients who are not intoxicated and not there for a psych. What matters is if you have a chance to assess that patient for capacity, if you get into an AMA situation that you do that, you document it, you document the conversation well, that person, if they presented with capacity, you know, had the decision-making capability and the right to walk out. So that's what you're going to wind up arguing. With what Ruben is saying here, calling in the lobby three times, if it is something that is deemed potentially serious, trying to contact them after they leave. And I have to say, I don't do that for every single patient that I'm seeing. Sometimes the wait is too long or they need to feed their pet, which I totally get because I have pets also, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's okay if a patient comes in on their own (laughs) to leave on their own. And if you really take it to the most crazy extension of this in our thought experiment, right? Are you going to have security standing outside of every room or prevent anybody who you think is walking to the bathroom from walking out the front door? And of course you're not. So we're going to need to do a pretty rapid assessment as far as those patients, again, that Ruben told us to exclude from this discussion. Yeah. So there's two big points that I want to sort of bring out here. One is prevention. The first strategy I would have is to anticipate who we judge to be at high risk for elopement, for example, a pet at home, or maybe a IV drug user, or someone who is agitated, who had the squad called by someone else, and they didn't really feel like they needed to come in the first place. And if we can anticipate who might be high risk, maybe we can give them just a little extra TLC. Touching base often with patients if they're waiting, making sure somebody is sort of circulating around in the waiting room, a volunteer, if you have one, someone who can kind of keep an eye on what's going on out there. I mean, there are definitely cases of litigation that have gone forward because an adverse event happened in the waiting room. And so it's not that different from someone eloping from the waiting room because of a long wait and then having a bad event. The elopement, I guess, works against them a little bit. But still, whatever strategies you can creatively adopt in times when your weights are going through the roof, all of those things are protective. And the next one is something I can do better at, which is expectations and telling, for example, a patient that 
we'll probably have the CT done and read, and I will be back to you with results in 90 minutes or 120 or 60 or whatever it might happen to be. And, and having a realistic expectation on the patient's side hopefully will prevent them from just leaving because it's been too long because they would have expected it. Yeah, and I would end with just saying like, you know what, we're not magicians. You could drive yourself crazy trying to locate these patients after the fact. I think you do a little bit of due diligence in a situation that you don't deem as being super high risk. Obviously, a very high risk situation, you're going to pull out all the stops. For example, a patient who elopes with an IV in place, but in a, you know, walk-in, walk-out kind of patient who was there for belly pain, like I think you know, Ruben, you did a great job calling that patient three times and trying to find where they were in the waiting room. And you did your due diligence. So to answer the specific question, what represents the higher risk? An AMA done well and correctly, where we document the patient has capacity, they understand the risks and all the other things we talk about should be lower risk because we have documented those things. In the same way, a patient that elopes when they came there on their own will, to me, feels like it has a low risk with the understanding that they don't represent an imminent risk of harm to self or others, that they have the ability to make their own decisions in that type of way. So to summarize all this, I would just have to say, Gita, it's the wise clinician who not only anticipates possible elopement, but then takes measures to minimize the risk of that happening. And hopefully, if it does end up with a bad outcome, we'll have documented in such a way that will show that we cared about that patient and about what happened to that patient. So thanks so much for helping me unpack this. This is uh, still a tough case here. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Without a doubt. But uh, Ruben, thanks so much for the question. Thanks, Ruben. Letter two. A subscriber recently wrote in with a really interesting radiology question. They were asking about the use of CT scan for diagnosing various gallbladder pathology. So we know that ultrasound is generally the preferred study for diagnosing cholelithiasis, cholecystitis, but in reality, we often get a CT first for some other reason. And so since this is a radiology question, I have invited Dr. Ali Raja to answer it for us. So Ali, thank you so much for taking on this mailbag question. We know the reality of the situation here is that Sometimes we get that CT scan before we get the ultrasound or before we're even thinking about getting an ultrasound, depending on the comorbidities of the patient, their age, where they feel the pain in their abdomen. We might start with a CT scan, and then lo and behold, we end up getting an interpretation about the gallbladder. So let's talk about how good a CT scan is for diagnosing various gallbladder pathologies. Absolutely. And you know what? I've been there, right? I think we've all been there. As you said, the patient comes in with pain, and sometimes you can isolate it to the right upper quadrant, but a lot of times you can't. And it's just this diffuse pain, and they're pretty darn tender, and you end up getting a CT scan. And maybe if you retrospectively knew exactly what they had, you might have started with an ultrasound, but you've got this CT, and you pick up some gallbladder pathology. Yeah, so happy to talk about that. And and I think the way to talk about it is probably to break it up into three different kinds of gallbladder disease, right? There's just having some gallstones in your gallbladder. Um, there is the, that gallstone, one of those little gallstones moving within the bile ducts and becoming cholidocolithiasis rather than just having cholelithiasis, which is just the gallstones. And then there's an infection of your gallbladder, right? There's, there's cholecystitis, acute infection or inflammation of the gallbladder. Well, let's go in that order. That seems to make sense. So starting with just stones in the gallbladder, whether or not that's causing a symptomatic presentation today, let's start there. Yeah, perfect. So 
Here's the thing about stones in the gallbladder. This is probably where CT scan is the worst. And let me explain. So gallbladder stones are usually made up of bile. And so they're sort of isoattenuating to the bile around them. So it depends on how much they are calcified and how much they are, for example, made of cholesterol. And so because of the fact that there are cholesterol stones and pigment stones and mixed stones that are part cholesterol and, and part pigment, it all depends on what the makeup of that stone is. And if there's a bunch of calcium in the stone, then just like bone, they'll show up on the CT scan. If they're cholesterol, they'll be hypoattenuating just because they'll be a little bit different and sort of darker instead of lighter on the CT scan. But if they're in the middle, if they're mixed, they kind of just look like bile. And so they don't, they become isodense and they don't actually show up on CT scan, which is really tricky. You might have a round gallbladder full of bile and there might be a few gallstones in there. You just can't tell because they're hyper, they're isodense and, and not attenuating compared to the bile. So it sounds like what you're saying is that depending on the type of stone, CT scan might see them and have no problem, or it might look totally negative, and yet that could be the cause of the patient's pain if they're having a symptomatic cholelithiasis. Absolutely. And in that case, you would need an ultrasound. You'd need to follow that study with an ultrasound. Yes. Ultrasound, as we all know, is much better, right? You can do standard grayscale ultrasound, and you'll pick up these highly reflective echogenic foci within the gallbladder itself. We're used to seeing those. And if you see those outside in the, in the biliary tract, you obviously know that they're going through there as well. And, and so if you're focused specifically on gallstones, you want to use your ultrasound. Great. Okay, so that is cholelithiasis. Right. Let's talk about cholelithiasis. So those stones have migrated down into the common bile duct. So here, CT is actually a little bit better. Not because of the fact that it necessarily sees the stone better, but you actually pick up on the stuff around the stone. So you can actually potentially see stones as they move into the bile duct system. And you might actually see the inflammation in the, the stuff around them. So radiologists will pick up something called a target sign where you have the stone itself and the bile or the mucosa of the duct around it, you can see as inflamed around it. You can actually pick up a couple of other unimportant radiology signs. And so CT is better for when the stone is in the duct than when the stone is just sitting in the gallbladder, but it's still not as good as ultrasound. Ultrasound is still the first investigation when you start thinking of patients that just have cholelithiasis and don't have sort of generalized abdominal pain. Okay, so once again, patient with pain not explained on that CT scan, we're going to follow this with an ultrasound if we didn't obtain that ultrasound to begin with. Exactly. Okay, now cholecystitis. It's an itis, there's inflammation. I would hope that this is more easily seen on CT. It is. And the thing about the itis and the inflammation is once you start talking about inflammation of that part of your body, it can be other things as well, right? Because CT can also pick up and will evaluate for other pathologies in that same area at the same time. And so it is not only better at picking up cholecystitis than it is at picking up just cholelithiasis, but in a patient who's really tender there, it's not at all unusual for us to just get a CT scan, right? So picking up cholecystitis on a CT is pretty common. Now, I have to tell you that the most sensitive test is still going to be ultrasound, especially because of the fact that we can do it faster and it doesn't have radiation. But don't feel bad if you pick up cholecystitis on a CT. It's perfectly reasonable. And a CT is a better test for that than it is for just having stones in the gallbladder. 
So once again, if that CT is negative, are you comfortable at that point with the sensitivity of CT scan that you would stop there or you would still follow it with ultrasound? So the studies have shown that it's still not perfectly sensitive. It's in the low 90s. Ultrasound's mm-hmm. a little bit higher in the 90s with the gold standard of sort of surgical evaluation and follow-up of patients. But it really depends. And that's a a case-by-case basis, quite honestly. If the patient is really tender and the CT doesn't show anything, you're going to follow it up with the ultrasound. If it was low probability and they're distractible and their pain's gone away by the time that you go back and tell them their CT is negative, I wouldn't get it. So the fact is that much like many other things, the follow-up on a CT for a patient in whom you're concerned about acute cholecystitis with an ultrasound is going to be dependent on your pretest probability for disease. Now, I was assuming that we're talking about CT with contrast. Yes. Do you know about non-contrast studies? For some reason, the patient could not get contrast. Does anything change? No, it, it doesn't really change for this particular disease process. You're not putting contrast directly into the biliary tract, as some hepatologists and others might do. You're not really affecting the density of the bile surrounding the stones with IV contrast. Cool. Okay, so I'm going to try to summarize this once again. In general, yes, it happens fairly frequently that we get CT scans on patients with abdominal pain, and it ends up being something that's gallbladder related that's going on with them. But if the CT is negative and you are suspicious for cholecystitis or symptomatic cholelithiasis or cholecystocholithiasis, you still should follow it with an ultrasound. So in general, if you get that CT scan and it's negative, that's not a good enough test to exclude gallbladder pathology, and you're still going to follow it with an ultrasound. Correct. If it's positive, it's likely to be a true positive. All right, everyone, that's the mailbag for this month. Don't forget to keep those letters coming. Cross Timbers, Missouri. If you're hungry and looking for something to eat, all we can say is sorry. The nearest restaurant is crappy. It's named after a fish. C R A P P I. Wait, so what's the name of the restaurant? The Crappy Hole Bar and Grill. Wait, the Crappy Hole Bar and Grill? Alright, I'm gonna look it up now. No, don't do that. You're just wasting your Wait a time. minute. The Crappy Hole Bar and Grill is in Hermitage, Missouri. It's just 12. What? It's just 12 miles away. Doesn't matter if it's 12 miles Come away. To Cross Timbers, Missouri. No, it's not in Cross Timbers, Missouri. 12 miles away. Come to Cross Timbers, Missouri and eat 12 miles away in another city? Come on. Come to Cross Timbers, Missouri. Monster. Like that? (laughs) (laughs) Woo! We covered so much, Swami. There was a lot of good stuff in this month's MRAP. I think it's time that we break it down. Mega breakdown. Do a little bit of mega summary. Absolutely. Mega absolutely. Drop into our first segment. This is one that I led off with saying this is one of my favorite pieces of the month. Dr. Amol Matu. Cardiology corner with Amol talking about some clinical conundrums. And, And basically, what we did was we went through two different cases that initially seemed like they could be pretty straightforward, except that they are totally not straightforward at all. The first was a STEMI with a patient who had stroke-like symptoms and all of the things that are wrapped into, could this be a dissection? Could they have two different things, different processes going at the same time? And what are our management priorities? And listening to Amol piece these together and say, here's what I did. Here's what I did next. Here's the next thing. 
I think it gives us a lot of security when these cases pop up of what we're going to do. And the second case, which I thought the first one was going to be complicated. The second one, even worse, it's STEMI pattern with the concern for dissection. And it's the question of, do you go to calf first or do you go to CT angio first? If I go to CT angio, am I going to delay the calf? It's one of those things, Jess, where I feel like no matter what I do, the next day, someone's going to tell me I did it wrong. And so that's okay. I just got to do the right thing for the patient. And listening to Amal talk about, again, how he went through this, how he reasoned it out in his mind, really helps me to say, when I have this case, here's the way I'm going to go through it. The next segment was the one that I said was my favorite, which is the pneumothorax smackdown. So this was hosted by Eileen Claudius, and she interviewed Al Sacchetti and Jeff Seiden talking about the management, really, of these moderate-sized pneumothoraces. They focus on the pediatric patient, but the discussion is very much applicable to all patients. They cover a lot of things that I think are just good basic knowledge and things that probably no one would disagree too much about. Al goes through his recommended technique for the procedure, which there's some cool tips in there about starting the procedure with the patient upright and then lying the patient supine when they start breathing. So that way it sort of presses that pigtail catheter posteriorly against their chest wall. And that's a cool tip there. They talk about some positioning, sedation, catheter size, but then they get into the really fun part of the discussion, which is, of course, when they disagree. (laughs) So Al is going to give the perspective of intervening. Go ahead and put that pigtail catheter in, alleviate the pneumothorax, and then perhaps even sending the patient home in some circumstances when the close follow-up is there and it's a good, reliable patient. And Jeff gives a different take on this. He says, hey, why don't we watch and wait? Because You may not need to intervene. It may not expand. Maybe the symptoms are minimal. They both do agree, though, that you should lean on the symptomatology. Many patients are going to feel pain, but not necessarily dyspnea. And if it's not causing them a lot of distress, it's really sort of up to you and discussion with your patient whether or not intervention is really necessary or preferred. I think sometimes it's really hard. You have a patient who comes in with a complaint. You figure out what's causing the complaint. And then you say, I know what it is, but I'm not going to do anything. And yeah. it, it feels a little wrong to not do something, but sometimes really the best thing you can do is to not do anything and let it take care of itself. But I think it is a, a hard thing to do. And it's good to hear that they really rely not on the findings themselves, but on the symptoms the patient's having. And we talk about this all the time. These are the patients, the couple that I've had where I've not done anything for the small or moderate sized pneumothorax, where I have them walk and see how symptomatic they get. And yeah. they can walk and they're comfortable. That usually to me is a good sign that they're going to be okay without me putting a missile in their chest. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a very good tip. A walk test is usually a very good idea in any dyspneic patient. Absolutely. And in a couple of months in December, we're actually going to sit down with Weingart and have a segment dedicated to pigtail catheters because a lot of questions that we've had from listeners on pigtail catheters and complications and how we should be placing these because we didn't all train with pigtail catheters. So we're going to get a little bit more into that in a couple of months. Absolutely correct. And that brings us to our next segment, which was actually the neurocritical care intubation with Weingart. And this is interesting because I think that we often think about doing this neurocritical intubation in the patient who comes in with a head trauma. We think about it in the emergency, that patient who's just presenting to us and Weingart says, well, that's not really the patient that I'm talking about with the neurocritical intubation. I'm really talking about the patient where they come in, you've actually already figured out what's wrong with them. They have some intracranial pathology and now they're decompensating. You didn't intubate them initially because you didn't need to, but now they're getting worse. And that getting worse is 
usually because they've got increased ICP. And so now we have to think about how do we safely intubate this patient so as not to spike that ICP, so as not to drop that blood pressure so they're malperfusing their brain. And so we go through a lot of different pieces to doing that properly, starting with some non-pharmacologic considerations like reducing intubation time to reduce the stimulation of that posterior pharynx, which Jess, it is important for us to say it, but at the same time, there's not a lot of intubations where I say, I'm going to go ahead and take 15 to 20 minutes on this intubation, but it's a good reminder to drop the tube in as quickly as you can once you get into that process. And then we talk about blood pressure control. Weingart is always going to want clavidipine if available, nicardipine as his backup, which is available in most places. And then we go from there into pre-medication. Much of the pre-medication has fallen by the wayside, but Scott still says that there is a big place for fentanyl because if you give fentanyl early enough, it can really blunt some of the catecholamine response to laryngoscopy, but you got to give a big dose and you got to give it time to work. So this isn't bolus to fentanyl and then insert the laryngoscope. It is bolus to fentanyl, give them five or 10 minutes, and then you're inserting that laryngoscope, which is why, again, this is not for the acutely decompensating, that airway is going to disappear in the next 30 seconds. This is really for a more planned intubation. And then from there, we talk about osmotic agents, which osmotic agents you have is really going to dictate what you're going to give, but hypertonic is usually the best way to go. And then some of the medication nuances, what paralytic should we use? What induction agent? And I'm going to go ahead and spoil it for some people here, Jess. Atomidate is the induction agent to use in Scott's mind. But if you don't have that, Ketofol is a decent backup. Propofol alone is a decent backup. And Thiopental, which Jess, you're the same generation as me. I've never used Thiopental to intubate someone, but in many of the places outside of the US, Thiopental is still available and is widely used for induction for anesthesia and for intubation. So this is a nice segment, goes through a lot of different concepts and topics within this neurocritical intubation. It really forces you to think about the difference between good and great can be these tiny nuances, right? To really sink your teeth into like, okay, I'm intubating this patient. I can intubate a patient. I can RSI someone and drop a tube in pretty quickly. But if I do these specific interventions, then the patient's likely to have a better outcome or avoid that bad outcome. And, you know, the same thing came up in the June MRAP where Scott and you talked about the ketamine alone intubation and awake intubation. There's subtle things that you can do that have a big impact where that difference from good to great is actually minuscule, but has a massive impact. These are the things that make your intubation elegant, right? There was no changes in the patient's hemodynamics during intubation. It's lovely when that happens. It doesn't always happen, but these are the things that we can do to kind of make things a little smoother when we do these procedures. Rural medicine talks. The next segment is rural medicine with Vanessa Cardi and Mel Herbert. And rural medicine is always one of the favorite segments. No matter who you talk to, Vanessa has these really great stories that not only do they tell an interesting story, but they really make you think. And this month, Vanessa presents a story of a nine-year-old girl who came in with three days of intermittent fever. She's otherwise healthy. She really looks very well. Maybe she's a little bit tired, but kind of looks like the million other kids that you saw who had a virus and a little bit of a fever. So she gets, you know, kind of an exam and then discharged home, has a bounce back the next day really kind of looking the same, but it's a bounce back. So we do a little bit more for a bounce back, a little bit of tests were done and repeat exam. And then she discharges the patient again. Then there's another bounce back on day three. And now it starts to raise more questions. What are we missing? What workup is actually going to be helpful when the clinical status really hasn't changed 
They're just here because of recurrent fevers that are episodic. And Vanessa also brings up this great point. When you are the clinician seeing the bounce back patient the first time, you're like, oh, this is great. I have continuity. I understood what they look like the day before. When they come back again, do you still want to be that clinician? Because then you really get into your head and start thinking, I'm missing something. I shouldn't be the one seeing this patient. Or should I be? Because I have the continuity. And I think, I don't know about you, Swami, but where I work at JPS in Fort Worth, I feel very comfortable going up to another attending and just saying, can I just run this by you? Because I'm afraid I'm missing something. Absolutely. Sometimes like, can you just see this patient and make sure that there isn't something glaringly obvious that I am skating over? And just aside from the fact that it makes me feel better, it makes the patient feel better to say, you know what? I'm taking this very seriously. I'm going to bring in a second doc. Yeah, because you, you know that's going through their mind, right? That's part of what's getting in your own head is that the patient might be looking at you and their family saying, I don't know if we should trust this doctor. They keep missing something. So then you get a third bounce back in this case. So it's now day five for the patient. And now the patient is looking critically ill. So now we know that something bad is really going on. The patient is now listless and she starts having seizure-like activity and has an abnormal neuro exam. And so the patient gets transferred for a CT and is found to surprisingly have a brain abscess with mass effect. And so she's treated for that and has a good outcome. But Vanessa brings up some really excellent points about what do you do when the patient keeps returning to the emergency department? How do you escalate the workup without doing too much too soon? And, you know, should you be the one seeing the patient on these repeat visits? I think there's you could argue it either way. But my style is I'll see the patient every time. I'm happy to do that. But I do want to bring in another set of eyes because I don't even know what my blind spots are. Right, right. Absolutely. And, and as with every one of these rural medicine pieces, what this teaches me is a little bit of humility. It reminds me that we have to be humble in medicine because these things surprise you. This kid looked great for three or four days and multiple visits. And then all of a sudden they don't look good anymore. And it's, it's hard for us to really toe that line of overworking up the patient when we know that 99 out of 100 times, this kid's going to have a viral syndrome. They're going to be better in a couple of days. But that 1%, they're not. And it doesn't mean that we're going to do a head CT on every kid who comes in with a fever. But we have to be really careful with how we make sure that the patient knows what to look out for, what to come back for, get that reevaluation. And like you said, have the humility to not just reevaluate the patient fully yourself, maybe to ask for a little bit of help. Yeah, especially if you have to transfer that patient to get that head CT. It really sort of raises the stakes. Absolutely. Nephrostomy tubes. All right, that brings us to our next piece on nephrostomy tubes. And Jess, do you know a lot about nephrostomy tubes? Because nope. I see lots of patients with <laughs> nephrostomy tubes, but it doesn't mean I know a lot about nephrostomy tubes. Yeah, no, I definitely could use some education in this area. It hurts. I'm going to get some imaging and try to figure <laughs> out is something leaking? Is something kinked, broken? Uh, I don't know. Just get some imaging. Nope. You've got the same extensive knowledge that I have, which is why we brought in Britt Long to discuss everything about nephrostomy tubes, starting with some of the minor, very common complications, like a little bit of redness at the site, a little leakage of urine, decreased urine output, maybe some scabbing around the site. These are common things that patients will complain about. Most of these can be handled by the emergency physician and are not a big deal. But then from there, we move into the major complications, including things like obstruction or catheter dislodgement and kinking, infection, which is one of really the more common complications and one that we really do worry about. And what Britt really gives us is in those major complications, what we can start with and then who we need to get to help. Because a lot of these patients are going to need help from a specialist, but we can at least start down the pathway to figure out 
what's going on, which specialist do we need. Of course, getting in touch with whoever put the nephrostomy tube in in the first place is really helpful, but it's nice to get this little bit of background and have a little bit more information when we talk to that specialist and say, I've already done these things, and here's where I am, and now I need a little bit more help. That's what we always want to do, right? We don't want to call them, oh, I got a patient with a nephrostomy tube. What do I do? We really want (laughs) it to be, I got a nephrostomy tube. Here's what the patient complained of. Here's what I've done. Here's what I've ruled out. And here's the more help that I need from you, why I'm bothering you now. The next segment was on resuscitation of a DNR patient. And I got to interview one of my favorite people, Kenny Bond from UCSF Fresno, who has this really incredible story of a case from a few years back in which a patient coded in the emergency department and the patient had already been admitted but was boarding. So they didn't really know a lot about the patient. They just started, you know, doing their resuscitation and got the patient back only to find out a few minutes later that the patient was actually DNR. And so now what do you do in this difficult situation? Well, if you're Kenny Bond, you take out a microphone and you interview the patient about that experience and get his input, which is amazing that he thought to do it and so wonderful that the patient was willing to share his experience. So it's really just sort of a story and an opportunity to reflect on what do you do in this situation. Ideally, we would never be in this situation. Ideally, we would know a patient's code status And we would want to be able to honor that. But sometimes these things happen. And what do you do if you find yourself in that moment? Uh Uh-oh, we successfully resuscitated him and he never wanted that in the first place. Well, as soon as you understand what the patient's wishes are or were, you should try your best to align with them, even if that meant that he got some CPR or he got defibrillated. As soon as you know and understand You want to act accordingly to align with the patient's end-of-life wishes. It's really hard because we often have these patients who are boarding, sometimes for multiple shifts, multiple handovers. And I think it's really important for us to, to make sure that our colleagues know this is a patient who has very explicit wishes that if they code, they don't want to be resuscitated. I know we do that. I know we do it, but I also know how many times this goes wrong. I know how many times this happens where somebody who clearly said they did not want to be resuscitated gets resuscitated. The reason I know it happens often is because I've done it. I've done it before where I didn't know what the patient's wishes were. And so I really now make a big point of making sure that I hand that off to the next person as best I can. If I need to put a big sign on the door so everyone knows, especially if you're thinking that that patient may not actually make it through this hospitalization, I think it's even more important to make sure that their wishes are clear. But sometimes you make a mistake. And I think we have to own up to those mistakes. We have to talk to the patient if they've regained consciousness and let them know, hey, we made a mistake. This is what happened. What's next? And they can help you to make those decisions too. And maybe there's some solutions here. Like maybe this should be something that shows up on our track boards, or maybe the patient should be wearing some sort of medic alert bracelet. So there are things that we can do to try to all be on the same page about a patient's end of life wishes. But sometimes even when we didn't mean to, We do things to patients that they didn't want. And then, like you said, we have to own that and we have to be honest and then we have to realign with what their wishes are. All right, Jess, our final segment was Dan McCollum talking about STIs, a little update. We have had a couple of segments on STIs because let's be honest, they never go away. They only get worse. They get more resistant. They get more complicated. And so Dan goes into a lot of the updates that have come out of the CDC and things we have to think about. And just some of these things, I would like to say that I knew all of this information, but it's a good reminder. He starts with talking about how the number one STI in the U.S. is HPV. HPV is vaccine preventable. So this is something that we could potentially eliminate 
if we were all getting vaccinated. So something to think about. As far as non-viral STIs, the most common is trichomonas vaginalis. I don't think I would have gone there. I think I probably would have guessed chlamydia, but it's trichomonas. And the old school approach is to make a wet prep, find that microscope and look at it. Jess, I haven't done that since I was an intern and I don't want to go back to it because that microscope is disgusting. I don't want to be anywhere near that thing. And fortunately, we have nucleic acid amplification tests. They are wonderful. They're extremely sensitive. They're very good at picking up what they're supposed to pick up. So that's what we're going to do to find most of these different STIs. So get that nucleic acid amplification test and make sure to treat the patient. Make sure also to think about, do I need to treat the partner? Because if we don't, we're just going to keep this cycle going. And then from there, he goes into a little bit more of the run-of-the-mill STIs, the ones that we commonly think about, the most common being chlamydia, mycoplasma genitalium, not maybe one of the most common ones, but it is becoming more common. Gives a little bit of update on gonorrhea. Gonorrhea is the, the bug that likes to build and build resistance. When I started way back in the day, it was 125 milligrams of ceftriaxone IM. Now we're up to 500 milligrams. Soon it is going to be mainlining ceftriaxone <laughs> two grams, Q2 hours for the next week in order to fight off gonorrhea. Gonorrhea continues to become resistant. We continue to have to ratchet up the doses. And it's a good reminder just to make sure that we are giving the correct dose. We fall into the same problem with chlamydia too, that azithromycin, that single dose, not as effective as we would like it to be. And so the recommendation is to give doxy, but Jess, I'm sure your patients are like mine. A lot of those doxy scripts go unfilled. So sometimes we do the best we can, which is the azithromycin, knowing that it may not actually fix the problem, but also knowing that they're not going to get that doxycycline filled. So again, a good reminder of a lot of these different common pathogens that we have to know about, some of the uncommon ones that we're seeing more and more of, how to recognize them and how to treat them properly. May I have the soapbox for one moment? Just one Please. moment. Okay. Absolutely. I have two things that I want to say about STIs. I feel real strongly about them. The first one is don't forget to test men for trichomonas. We so often just send the urine off for gonorrhea and chlamydia and then call it a day. We should also be testing men for trichomonas because they can absolutely get it too and keep passing it back and forth between their partners. So if you don't have the ability to run that test, talk to your lab and it's usually, it can be either done off the urine or a urethral swab, which the patient can do on himself. Test the men, please test them for trichomonas. My second soapbox item, I strongly encourage you if you are doing a workup for STIs, also please send serum tests for HIV and syphilis. I don't know why so many people just send the gonorrhea and chlamydia and then they think they're done. No, if you think they're at risk for gonorrhea and chlamydia, they are also at risk for syphilis and HIV, which are very intervenable. There are great, you know, syphilis, curable, penicillin, that's all you need. And then HIV, we have great medications detected early. So please, soapbox over, test for HIV and syphilis. That's a great soapbox, Jess. I'm glad that you, you hit on all those points because they're really important. And you know, for a long time, I thought, oh, we're not testing for syphilis because I'm given ceftriaxone and, and that's got to be treating the syphilis. But we talked to Brian Hayes about this way back when, and ceftriaxone does not treat syphilis. The reason that we don't usually give the penicillin as part of the cocktail is because syphilis is fairly uncommon, but comes with a big but, you have to know your population. And in certain populations, syphilis is more prevalent and we should be more aggressive about treating it or more aggressive about testing and treatment. Although Dan does also bring up that part of the reason why we're seeing so much resistance is because we've always embraced the treat everybody. If you think there's an STI, 
don't rely on the test and don't rely on getting the patient back. But it's something for us to think about whether we should be blanket covering everybody, knowing that we're going to build up resistance. And Jess, I wish that I had an answer to this. I wish Dan had an answer to this. I don't think we do, but I think it's something to consider. If you have a reliable patient, maybe it is better to test and wait. But most of the patients that we're seeing in our emergency departments, we don't think we're going to get them back. And so we're pretty aggressive about treatment. And Dan also talks about partner treatment, the fact that you don't have to see the partner in order to treat them in almost every state, except for South Carolina. All of our listeners in South Carolina, we're sorry, we can't help you. <laughs> but you could tell them to send their partner in to get evaluated. Tell them to send their Do partner that. in. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and honestly, that's the best thing no matter what. But we always hedge our bets and say, in case your partner doesn't come in, here's the prescriptions they can get taken care of too. But your soapbox is great. Dan had his soapbox at the end too. I think they are real important things for us to consider when we're treating this if we really want to take care of it the right way. And with that, have we reached the end of October's MRAP? Is anyone I think still we listening? Have reached the end. Did people make They're it this all far? Still listening. Nobody <laughs> has turned us off yet, Jess. Nobody has turned us off. And we know that because right now, if you drop a bunch of F bombs, everybody will tell us. That's that about it. Everyone's still yeah, listening. I was going to do that. I was, that's how I was going to end the show. Mega fuck. Well, Jess, it was a great month. I mean, so much good stuff here. I'm going to go back and listen to a couple of these pieces again, like I always do, because I don't always get them burned into my brain that first time through. So I got to go back and listen to a couple of these. But we had some really good stuff, really covering the gamut of emergency medicine. Thanks for letting me co-host. And Jan, thank you for letting me co-host as well. All right. And look for those Almond Joys in the mail, not just from me, but from all of our listeners too. Jess, thanks so much. Thank you. Don't forget to keep doing what you do, because what you do matters. Next time on MRAP. You know, it's more than just giving blood. It's all of the other evidence-based interventions. And by the time anyone else notices, it's out of control. And cardiology would just kind of yawn and say, oh, okay, we'll go ahead and give him nitro and aspirin and then I'll see you in the morning. He was burned and charred on his head, his face, his shoulders, his arms, and his chest. His arms were outstretched and, and he was moaning softly. And I thought, gosh, does any of the stuff that I learned in residency still apply? Hey, MRAPers, it's October, which means if you're getting ready for Oktoberfest, the Bavarian celebration of beer and lederhosen that started in 1810 to mark the wedding of King Ludwig I to Princess Theresia Charlotte Louise von Sachsen-Hildenburghausen, well, you're late because Oktoberfest started in September and ends on October 3rd. <laughs> Now, you're probably wondering, hey, did you ever hear back from the English Heritage Trust about the royal price increase that goes against the stipulations put forward in the Stonehenge deed by Cecil Chubb? Why, yes, I did. And it started with this. Thank you for taking the time to contact us, and I am sorry to hear you are disappointed with the admission prices for Stonehenge we currently charge. Then it went into a long discussion about how the prices cover a whole host of costs related to restoration and preservation, and... While ensuring the continued sustainability of the charity and our conservation... Yeah, 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 we don't have any money, and we're using it all for restoration and making sure everybody blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. What does this have to do with October? Well, Sir Cecil Chubb signed the deed on October 26th, 1918, and he never thought that 104 years later his legally binding agreement would be so besmirched under the paltry guise of restoration and preservation. That sounds a bit harsh. Did you ever get those drapes? No, come to think of it. But you know what? Doesn't matter, because October 26th is also the birthday of Giovanni Maria Lanzisi in 1654, and he was the papal physician to three popes, including Pope Innocent XII. And he said, 
Hey, innocent, maybe you should stop eating so much fatty foods. And the Pope was like, Thanks, Giovanni, but I like my fatty foods. And then he got gout and died in 1700. So the next time you're dealing with a patient that's trying to leave against medical advice, you can say, Why are you trying to be like a Pope Innocent XII who kept eating fatty foods and it died of gout? Happy October, everybody. It's Pumpkin Day, too. Did you know that? No, that's Pumpkin Head. It's Pumpkin Day. Pumpkin Day! I thank you again for taking the time to contact us and for your feedback in regards to the admission prices at Stonehenge. Please be assured that these will be passed to our historic properties management team and taken into consideration. Kind regards. Overall, Pumpkinhead has a hell of a lot of flaws, but also a lot of things going for it. It balances to an average horror experience, coming in at three monstrous mechanical masters out of five. Pumpkinhead.